Boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, lads and lasses, and those that don't subscribe to Agenda, welcome to the GOT Got Questions Podcast with Spencer and Lee. Spencer, say hey to the people. Hey, everybody. They say hey back. Spencer, how are you today? You know, it's Labor Day weekend. I got an extra day off and all is gravy with that kind of circumstance. You sound loose. You sound loosey-goosey, Spencer. I got two I got two extra days after this one where I don't have any expectations or obligations of me. Other than my girlfriend or my pets or my friends or basic chores around. Okay, let's stop talking. I got three days off and it's wonderful. But no podcast. I, we're, that's why we're here. We have a podcast to do right now. <laughs> that's right. All right. Today, we are going to, in the Got Questions podcast, we're going to be taking a look at Season 7, Episode 6, titled Beyond the Wall. Before we get going, uh, Spencer, a little housekeeping. I saw there was a Episode 2 of Mangum Reads that came out this week. You want to give a little recap of what you talked about? We did. We uh, Week before last, we covered a very character-driven story to the point when every character was essentially the same person. Uh, this week, we decided to cover a bit broader philosophical themes of where we hit Asimov and other hard, hard science fiction writers talking about the subjects of creation, the divine, the concepts of infinity and an eternity, and rolled that into a podcast focused on four short stories. And BJ, Josh, and I had a lot of fun talking about it. Hope you guys will, too. Good. I haven't had a chance to listen yet. I did listen to episode one, thought it was really good. Did not read the associated uh, story. <laughs> but I listened you were to the only getting about half you're only getting about halfway where I need to go, man. But it was still good. So, you know, if you uh, if you're yeah. like me and you're not a big um, I want to read every night guy, you can still listen to it and there's still some value there. So uh, good job by you, Spencer. Uh, we try, we try. Thank but. you for your service. Okay, we are going to jump into this episode in normal uh, got questions uh, fashion. We're going to start with a recap. Uh-huh. We'll cut to best line. That's me. I'm the emperor of best line. I decide that. Me alone. And uh-huh. then Spencer's going to get in a little book nerd bitching because uh, it is established. Spencer is indeed a book nerd. Is that a correct uh, characterization, Spencer? And as you've often told me for the last 15 years, also a bitch. But we'll leave that factor on the cutting room floor. I would never say that. I don't work blue like you, Spencer. Uh-huh. Now, <laughs> I think we need to admit honestly to our fans with this episode. We warned you an episode or two back. Um we will not be as positive in talking about this episode as we have been for much of the rest of the season and honestly for much of the rest of the show. To put it bluntly, I think it's fair to say neither of us like this episode really at all, even on rewatch. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm the type of guy, like, I love the community, right? Uh, I love the fact that there's a Song of Ice and Fire community, Game of Thrones community. I know that the show has brought so many more fans into the fold, myself included. I, I didn't read the book before the um, the books before the show came out. But man, and it's so with that being said, I'm usually not particularly critical of the show, but my God, this is a, this is a low from a storytelling perspective, from a production standpoint, still very good. And and I'm going to point out a lot of things I liked about the production and even some of the writing, but the plot itself, oh, Spencer, not so good. The plot is very indicative of where they know where they want to go. They know what story beats they want the story to have. But their method of getting between those is just fundamentally flawed, as this episode shows. But we will Oof. discuss it in excessive detail, as you know us to do. Oof. Okay, and then one more piece of um, housekeeping. Next week, we're going to do uh, the season finale of sev- uh, season seven, which would be episode seven, mm-hmm. The Dragon and the Wolf. And then after that, we're going to take a little break, a little well-earned break for ourselves. Uh, we're both going to go on vacation, have a big time. We're going to come back all loose, and we'll uh, we'll figure out what we're going to do. Maybe we jump into another Game of Thrones season, maybe go over to Westworld, maybe a movie, maybe a different show. We don't know yet, so more to come on that front. 
And we'd invite you guys to make recommendations, too. We're happy to listen to what suggestions you have to make. Um, but we just kind of felt that with all this podcast money we got rolling in, it was really time for us to make use of it. You know, just travel the world a little bit. Just sow some wild oats. Don't you agree, man? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're going to be like uh, like me and you are like LeBron and Chris Paul out in the banana boat. We're just going to be in a yacht somewhere in the Caribbean. It's going to be great. Yeah. And thank you all for donating the millions of dollars that have made this possible. <laughs> okay. All right. Enough housekeeping. Let's jump into the recap. Uh, we have the opening credits. Now, I do want to point out that in the previously on, uh, two main things uh, from previous seasons are referenced. One is the note that Sansa wrote mm-hmm. um, when she was basically at Cersei uh, Lannister's mercy, uh, begging Rob to uh, bend the knee to King Joffrey. And then also uh, a little bit of Longclaw, a little bit of Longclaw. Spencer, what's Longclaw? Longclaw is the ancestral sword of House Mormont that they received something like along the lines of 500 years ago. Famously, unlike a lot of the other swords we have in this, we really don't know much of the history of how they got it or what the circumstances were by which it entered their family line. But since then, it has been very much a token of their family. Same way that Ice, the ancestral sword of House Stark, uh, was very much a symbol of their line, Longclaw became very much an emblem of House Mormont, passed from father to son or from each lord to heir as time went on. Famously, uh, this sword was passed by the old bear, Jor Mormont, to his son, Jorah. But when Jorah had to flee for breaking the law with slaving, he left the sword behind. And Jor, as very much a representation of how he viewed John as his successor in many ways, gave John the sword to him. Keeping the name Longclaw, because it was very much still appropriate for either being a bear or a wolf on the pommel. And since then, John has used it as a... Uh, as um, his primary weapon at arms and what has proven essential to his efforts in, fight, in fighting the Great Other, where it is, I, I think at this point, killed one or two of the uh, Others themselves, the White Walkers themselves. Yeah, it's killed one. And so what we know about Valerian Steel is that it can actually, um, it, it doesn't shatter when it hits uh, or it makes contact with the, the Others or the White Walkers' weapons. So it's very, very important. And it's very important to note as well just how old this sword is. It being Valerian Steel, the last was that Valerian Steel artifacts weren't being produced by the Targaryen family. They were being produced in ancient Valyria. The methods and techniques by which Valerian Steel itself was created and forged were lost during the doom of Valyria, when Valyria itself disappeared in a single day. And since then, all that can be done is that the most skilled blacksmiths can reforge it into different blades, but the amount of steel itself is finite. And so... From which this sword comes, we have no idea, but its history is extensive and massive, and I imagine at some point we might find out more. Yeah, yeah, good good recap there. And to the the listeners, all of our uh, thousands and thousands of listeners, just be prepared. We're going to dive into, like, book and lore way more in this episode because we didn't like the episode. So <laughs> get ready for that. Just whenever you want to trigger me, just raise a flag. I'm ready to go. <laughs> okay, will do. We go to the credits uh, after the uh, previously on. Baratheon sigil still over King's Landing. I have covered that, but it still bothers me. And also, Spencer, why was there an Old Town sequence here? I thought they the, the point of the opening sequence is to show the places that are going to be on the show that week. And there's an Old Town sequence. We don't get and Old that, Town in this episode. And that was the great fun of the, of the intro credits from much of the earlier seasons, is that it gave you a hint and suggestion to let you already start pondering where the episode is going to go. And particularly over the last two or three seasons, they've started to lose that, where instead of just showing places where we're going to be, they're showing just kind of fixtures of the world. And I think that along with not updating the sigil in King's Landing, it suggests that they're playing, they're paying a little bit less attention to the opening credits than they probably should have, given what they used to represent. 
Agreed. And and for people who picked up the show in later seasons, you might think I'm I'm just obsessive about the opening sequence. But you have to remember that or you have to know that in the previous seasons, uh, episode season one and season two, especially, I mean, the opening sequence was a big seller of the show. I mean, it was the, the big, vast, scaping music and this beautiful sequence. And it, it gives you a frame of reference for where everything is on the map and where you're going. It was a real credit to the show. And I think it's fallen off. I remember during watching the earlier seasons that you and I would actually call or text each other while we were just watching the opening credits to celebrate what we might get to see. It's like, oh my God, we're going to get to see Bravos, or oh my God, this going to be Vase Dothrak this episode. It was an exciting event. The opening credits have always been a magistry of artwork. And now, just as so much of the rest of the show is kind of separating its cinematic quality from the plot, this is just another example of it, and it kind of hurts. Yeah, and in, in that vein, um, and Spencer, this is news to you, uh, in late September, I'm actually going to be going to the Game of Thrones concert experience. Oh. Uh, yeah, it's it's touring North America right now. I've got tickets. I'm going to go, I think, like September 24th or something in D.C. I'm going to go. And afterwards, um, Spencer, you can join me for this or not. Uh, I'm going to do a pod doing a little review of it. I'm going to take some notes while I'm there and and, and tell our, our very loyal listeners uh, how it went, what the experience was like. Hey, if you'd like to burn an illegal disc for me and, you know, admit it on the air right now that you're going to do so, I'd love to be able to listen with you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I went to the one that they did last year and I had a great time. Uh, so, and and I've noticed that when I'm looking at like Reddit or Twitter or whatever, people are like, oh, the Game of Thrones experience, is that really worth going to? Like, what is that? Like, because it's kind of weird to have like a touring music concert, right? Like for a TV show, it's, it's kind of unprecedented. So I'm going to take some notes. I'm going to do a little uh, one-off pod and, and give you guys a review of it. Sounds like a plan. Great. Okay. First, uh, we cut to Dragonstone and the camera is panning up the map table that Aegon, uh, the, the first uh, Aegon had made during his initial conquest of Westeros. Mm-hmm. Spencer, and that's it for this scene. Spencer, I gotta tell you, I, I think that this was just the show like trying to get their money's worth for that prop. <laughs> I mean, they made that prop back in season two. They've gotten some use out of it, but clearly that was a hell of an investment. I mean, Aegon himself literally claims to have walked the length of Westeros to make sure the map was accurate. And one would bet the show has invested a bit of budget into making it authentic and accurate too. Yeah, I'm calling shenanigans on Aegon walking. No, he flew. He totally flew. Eh, you know, that might have been a little bit too in t- showing the world what he has to bring to bear. This was meant to be a very covert operation of where he was carefully investigating each aspect of the world that he intended to conquer. He probably didn't do it himself. He probably sent out agents to various parts. But I think being incognito is an essential aspect of that. Agreed. All right. Then we cut to Beyond the Wall, where our cast of characters are embarking upon one of the dumbest adventures um, ever put on HBO, ever put on television. It's just so stupid. But anyway, they're walking. And I will say this, uh, credit to the show. Uh, I give the show a point here. They use drones beautifully in this entire episode. And you cannot take away from the fact that the episode is beautifully shot. It's cinematically gorgeous. And even the dialogue for what is essentially just 30 minutes of banter between characters honestly reminds me of Joss Whedon for just how damn sarcastic they've decided to make the characters over the course of the episode. And I'm okay with that. I enjoy the snark. Joss Whedon, shout out. Okay. And I agree with you. And we're going to get into that. So they're walking. You see a beautiful drone shot. And good guy John. He's checking on Gendry. Uh, And Gendry is really, really cold. (laughs) 
he is essentially our only southern well no the hound is there but the hound's not going to bitch about anything but yeah he is our our representative of the southern parts of westeros and yeah he's dying as you would expect he would be yeah he's really cold and so he turns to Tormund and he's like how do you how do you stay warm uh and Tormund says um uh walking but you have to keep moving that's the secret you have to keep moving uh, walking's good fighting's better fucking's best good line good line, good line by Tormund and, and it continues nicely, too, where John points out to him, there's not a woman within 100 miles of here. And Tormund delightfully just starts leering over Gendry, saying, we have to make do with what we got. <laughs> yeah, and then Gendry walks on, and uh, and then Tormund, I, I just love Tormund, he turns to John and just goes, maybe this one's not so smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do enjoy that Tormund here decides to point out what all of the audience thinking of how dumb a plan this is, of where uh, he responds, good. That's more important, uh, John says, you know, he's, he's a good fighter, which Storm responds, good, that's more important than being smart. Smart people don't come up here looking for the dead. I'm <laughs> glad someone took the time to say it. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I want to point out that we, we kind of skipped over is uh, Tormund's happy not to be on this dumb quest, but he's happy to be north of the wall again. And he he's actually tall. says, he takes in a big breath and says, I can breathe again. Down south, the air smells like pig shit. And, and I love this exchange because... <laughs> Uh, John then says, you've never been down south. I've been to Winterfell. That's the north. <laughs> but I, would, like, I like that exchange because it's kind of funny. But I also want to point out that, like, you got to think from Tormund's perspective, going to Winterfell was a huge deal. I mean, it was far and away. I mean, Tormund's an experienced raider. He's probably been south of, well, we know he's been south of the Wall. We've seen right. it on the show. But he's probably been south of the Wall several other times in his history. But Winterfell's like 600 miles farther south than that. One has to remember how freaking big the North is. So to him, Winterfell is practically an entirely separate world. Yeah, agreed. Uh, so I think that was a big deal, and I think that's why, you know, good writing. You know, credit to the show. Um, I'm not going to say that much this episode, but uh, good. Well, good. for the initial part. For the initial yeah. part, there's going to be some good banter here. Yeah, sure. All right. And then Tormund, you know, he's talking to John, and he brings up the Dragon Queen. And he pushes John on why he's not bending the knee to Danny. Uh, he, he specifically kind of uh, sarcastically points out, well, you, you spent too much time with the free folk. Now you don't like kneeling. <laughs> and he, uh, he actually throws a little shade at Mance Raider. He says, you know, Mance Raider was a good man, king beyond the wall. Um, how many, but who had never been the knee, but how many people had to die for his pride? Which I think is not really fair for a variety of reasons. I think in some ways he's trying to buck John up here rather than he maybe even really means it because... Mance was under entirely different circumstances. He was going to dedicate what was left. In, the Wilden Coast had already been crushed. Most of them had already left. We're just talking about the ones that had essentially been taken prisoner, all of whom ultimately did survive and, jo- and came south of the wall. Credit Jon Snow. Yeah, credit to Jon Snow. And they weren't coming south under no terms. They were coming south under swearing allegiance and basically being a suicide attack squad for Stannis, which probably wouldn't have been great for their career and life prospects given Stannis' entire army was destroyed not a few episodes later. Yeah, no, you're right. I, I think I don't think I, I'm with you. I don't think that he was actually passing judgment on Mance. I think he was trying to draw a parallel to John yeah. and say, "Hey, she's got dragons. You might want to consider bending a knee here." Yeah, and it's a perfectly fair point. We've drawn parallels between the two scenes before. The dialogue was literally identical because the show very much wants us to draw a contrast between these two characters' decision, and it's changed circumstances. As Tormund is pointing out. The Dragon Queen has, is putting us in a very different situation but with the army of the dead approaching than Stannis Baratheon ever could. Yeah, agreed. 
Then we cut to Gendry, who is still fired up with the Brotherhood Without Banners. So he's talking to Thoros, Barrick, and the Hound. And he's complaining, hey, you sold me off. I wanted to be one of you, and you sold me. And this, they, they say, that, was it, I think it's the Hound who goes, you know, stop your whinging. Yeah. Uh, Spencer, you ever heard of that phrase before? I've heard of the phrase whinging before, and indeed... Ben, uh, Gendry was very much whinging in this particular moment. As the Hound points out, as he, Gendry starts talking about all the horrible things that were done to him before, she strapped me down to a bed and then she stripped me naked, and the Hound immediately jumps in, sounds all right so far. Yeah, but the Hound is a little ridiculous toward the end of the conversation because he goes, you know, she tried to kill me, and then, you know, the Hound goes, well, she didn't. As if that somehow lets the Brotherhood off the hook. You know, oh, well, she didn't kill you, so you know, it's not that big a deal. No, it's still a pretty big deal. You sold the guy off. Like, just because that, uh, you know, Davos saved Gendry, that doesn't let the Brotherhood, um, you know, escape. Yeah, I mean, the Hound is kind of allergic to bitching. He's not a person that, you, he's not really a shoulder that's ever available to cry on. So he's just kind of nip, trying to nip the whinging in the bud. We're north of the wall on a suicide mission. We're probably all going to die. How about we let bygones to be bygones and focus on present circumstances? Thank you. Yeah. All right, and then uh, we cut to John and Jorah, which is this is what this was the conversation I was really looking forward to this episode, and we certainly get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, John and Jorah are talking about Giora Mormont, the uh, old uh, uh, Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, his death, and you know John and Jorah both lament the fact that it was actually his own men that killed him because Jorah loved the Night's Watch, he loved the men, and he would have done anything for them, and. Uh, you know, and Spencer, I remember me and you texting about this. We totally predicted it. It happened. John tries to give Longclaw back to Jorah. Which is so much in character for John. Yep. That's absolutely peak John. Very on brand. Uh, good job by John. Jorah looks at it. I think he considers it for a second. Uh, and then he kind of exhales and he, he says no. Uh, he doesn't deserve it. He brought disgrace to his family. And Jorah gave it to him. And then he hits him with a line that I think blows John back a little bit. A little bit of a hezzy here. A little bit of a hezzy. He says, it'll serve you well. And your children after you. Whoa. Yeah, John's a bit rattled by that. I think, A, trying to determine exactly what Jorah means, and then upon realizing what Jorah means, pondering the implications of it. I'm going to have children? What? I was just dead two two seasons ago. That's weird. Yeah. I think there's also a necessary implication here that is, this is Jorah quite literally passing the toll symbolically passing the torch to John of where he may still hold a torch for Danny, but he recognizes that his role has been usurped. Yeah. Then Jorah discusses um, Ned uh, condemning him to death for engaging in slavery. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, he was right, of course, you know, but I I ran off, you know, he, he went off to Essos before the sentence could be carried out. And John gives him a look and just goes, I'm glad he didn't cut you. Weird phrasing. Weird phrasing here. Well, Spencer, my question to you, was Ned running a bris? Like, <laughs> you know, when they say cut off the head, it can mean different things in different contexts, you know? <laughs> it's working blue again. Anyway, all right. That Enough with that. I like that scene. Um, again, their the plot is ridiculous. They're on a very dumb mission, but good banter. And it shows... I, I, I don't know whether to put this as just demonstrative of massive character growth for Jorah, that he isn't holding a grudge, that he isn't constantly building his life around reclaiming his rights and seeking to redeem the wrongs that were committed against him, or if this just shows how starkly different Book Jorah is from Show Jorah. Because Book Jorah, at least where we last left him, would never say any of this. 
But Shojora, it feels like believable character growth, that he's kind of reached this point, that he's left his past pains and grudges behind him to focus on something that means more. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, and then we go to Winterfell. Uh, again, beautifully shot scene. I think the snow coming down in this scene, I just, on rewatch, I was like, man, that, that. you know, when you're watching uh, shows that do production in winter or when it's snowing, oftentimes the snow is not particularly believable. I think mm-hmm. this was, and I thought it was it was really well shot. So credit to the production crew. Oh, no and doubt. Arya and Sansa, they're looking down in the courtyard. And Arya is a little bit of a mood here. She's clearly not happy. She recounts a story where she was watching some men train uh, down in the courtyard. And when they left, she ran down there and she started shooting uh, bow and arrow. She was training in a little archery. Uh, she wasn't supposed to do so. She's a woman. Uh, and then finally she hit the target and she heard... And Ned was watching her the whole time. And Arya understood that that was his tacit approval for who she was. She's not Sansa. She's not somebody who's going to be inside knitting. She's a warrior. And Ned was okay with that. Could could we just have an entire show of people reminiscing about Ned? Because these are my favorite scenes of every episode that they're in. I miss Ned so much. You are a a Ned man. Very much so. Uh, What hurts the scene for me is what hurts the Arya Sansa interactions throughout this entire episode is that Arya is in one heck of a tiff this entire episode. She's just coming across as needlessly hostile and unreasonable in every scene that she is in. And yeah, it's just forced conflict. I don't believe it. I didn't believe it the last few episodes. I don't believe it this episode. I I don't think that Arya would get that scroll and react the way that she does. I think it's just they they needed something to fill in the gaps between this fucking awful thing north of the wall, and this is what they chose. And I don't like it. I think you have two main plot points here in this episode. You've got the tension between Sansa and Arya and Winterfell, and you have the dummies going north of the wall to get a white, and both of them are not believable, and I don't like either one of them. And I don't really buy the landing they're ultimately going to go with here either. Are we to assume that they're doing all of this to trick Littlefinger? Or that they're essentially just going to resolve all of their differences off screen. Because I don't, I tr- I also don't find it believable at all, but I don't even know what they're trying to represent with it. It, As you said, it seems to exist for the purpose of trying to create tension to maybe convince a part of the audience, oh, are Sansa and Arya going to turn to each other and knife each other? Which we know they won't. And so it just plays up as a waste of screen time of two characters just kind of, to use the hound's word, whinging at each other. Ooh, nice callback. Good work there, Spencer. I will point out, though, that Maisie Williams and Sophie Turner, uh, we know that they're friends in real life. They make no bones about that, and they do act well together. So it, this was a dumb plot. I don't really like the script, but I think the actors uh, did a pretty good job. I'll, I'll agree with that. I just I have a hard time separating the actors from the role they're being made to play. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, she's talking about Ned, and, and then she, she lands on... Um, uh, the sentence uh, or the the phrase where she says, "Well, now he's dead, killed by the Lannisters, with your help." Mm-hmm. And then you see Sansa kind of drop, and Arya starts to read the scroll. And Sansa's super uncomfortable. She's looking around, wondering if anybody's hearing them. And you know, she, Sansa is just throwing anything at the wall here to see if it sticks as a explanation for this note. One of the things she says is, "You know, they said that, you know, they would, they, you know, they would basically." 
cease hostilities if Rob would just bend the knee and they would save dad if I if I just wrote this thing and then Arya fires back and you were stupid enough to believe them. Man, really fired up here, Maisie Williams' performance. I like it. Sansa then counter punches and I think this was her, her only avenue here. It's the only thing she could do is get high and mighty about the Battle of the Bastards. And spoiler alert, she is right. Uh, John did lose the Battle of the Bastards. Um, it was only because of her that they won. So it's a fair point. Good job by you, Sansa. Um, but Ultimately, this does not convince Arya of anything. Arya is still pissed off. And then Sansa goes to, well, damn it, I've been through a lot. She says, I've been through things you can't even imagine. And Arya says, oh, I don't know about that. I can imagine quite a lot. And I think Sansa thinks that's a flippant line. But I think us as the audience, we know she can imagine quite a lot. But ultimately, this conversation is some sort of like weird torture contest. Like, who's hurt the most? And I was like a little put off by it. What about you, Spencer? I was as well. I think ultimately Sansa is correct. Most most clear truism that Sansa offers here is that Arya could not have survived what Sansa did. I would say on the flip side that Sansa could not have survived what Arya did. But it comes across as just very unfair for, and I think even disingenuous, because Arya had made many actions to stay alive that weren't in, for, in furtherance of her quest for revenge. But she's here looking at Sansa saying, you, a 12-year-old caught and surrounded by hostile enemies, you should have been willing to die for a cause you didn't fully understand or have full information about and for under reasons by which at the time you didn't fully know to distrust the people you were talking with. But you should have died. And Spencer, just, Sansa apologist. I'm even more so in books than show. Uh, if I have to pick between Team Sansa and Arya, I'm on Team Sansa all the day. I don't want to Oh! Very much so. Are you, so, in are a you variety for real of right ways. Now? I'm fully in endorsing this position that I've just taken. I'm a super delegate who's coming out in support of a candidate right now. What the? F- Whoa, Spencer, you blew me back there. I would never have guessed that you would be you'd be Team Sansa over Team Arya. Yeah, anyway, we can go into that in a separate podcast of how much I enjoy Sansa's plotline in the books, particularly later on of where she ends up where we uh, at the end. But even on the show, I find Arya insufferable. I don't like her plotline. I don't like her character for several seasons now. And this season has just made it all the worse. Wow. I, hey, here you go. Spin Zone, you ready for this? Please. Maybe a potential panel for us, huh? Maybe a potential Team Sansa versus Team Arya panel at a con coming up. It would be fun. We would get a lot of pissed off people in the audience, I am sure. And okay. you know, mm. Yes, but write that down, Spencer. Write that down. That's a good idea. Typing, typing, typing. <laughs> uh, and then Arya, and this is a good point, um, she looks at Sansa and she goes, Why are you you're afraid? Why are you afraid? Oh, I'll tell John. No, that's not it. John would understand. That's his way. He's an understanding person. You're scared that I'm going to tell the Northern Lords. And immediately, it, shout out Sophie Turner, like her body language shows, yes, that is the case. And Arya does make a good point here. I don't, I don't know if it's really fair, but it, it at least is a good line where she says, what would little Leanna Mormont say? She's younger than you were when you wrote this. Are you going to say you were just a child? Which, fair point. I understand the fair point, but it entirely is, divo- is divorcing the statement from context. Little Liana has never been trapped and surrounded by her enemies of where they're literally looming over her, forcing her to write each word in what master. Um, yeah. And good for her enemies, by the way. Oh yeah, I mean, could they never the, tried that with her? She kicked their ass. I mean, even at the time of when the, uh, uh, Rob received the letter, 
he and his advisors immediately knew that it was Cersei's words that uh, Sansa was just being forced to repeat. No one judged her for this. Arya's kind of the first person ever that's looking at this and saying, this is an utter example of treachery. And so trying to compare it to little Lyanna, who's on her own island, surrounded by her own lord, sending a communication to essentially a usurper who wants her help, telling him to essentially screw off, it's fine, yes, little Lyanna would judge her, but she has no grounds or basis to do so. Yeah, yeah, you you bite your tongue there. Little, if little Lyanna Mormont had been in Sansa's situation... She would have died. No, no. Yes, the, no. she would have the, died. The, the Mormonts would be ruling King's Landing right now, Spencer. I don't know what show you're watching. Where, where the hell are you coming from? She's if badass, it, dude. There are so many moments of where Sansa survived, where so many of our other quote-unquote badass characters would have just not been unwilling to swallow their pride and would have died. Man, you love Sansa. Okay. All right, now we Because no to... one else will. Apparently, you leading that pack. Yeah, I'm not. I don't like Sansa at all. And I like her better in the show than the books, but that's for oh, another podcast. We will fight on a panel day. about this, sir. Uh, yes, we will. We go nose to the wall. And again, uh, we get more great drone shots. And then we get Tormund, who comes up to the hound. <laughs> this is oh <laughs> greatest boy. conversation ever. That, you know, this is going to be. I'm going to be hard pressed to pick another scene for best line of the episode because this is really great. But he walks up and he goes, You're the one they call the dog. Hound goes, fuck off. They told me you were mean. I don't think you're truly mean. You have sad eyes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Torment, I love you so much. To which the hound fires back. Are, are you trying to fuck me right now? No, he says, do you, you, uh, you want to suck my dick? Is that it? That's right, then, that's right. That's and then Torment goes, dick? And then the hound goes, cock? Ah, oh, dick. I like it. Bet you do. <laughs> it's a little Westerosi Abbott and Costello scene right here. I liked it. And it continues. I mean, the hard part for this, you know, what's going to be about three paragraphs of text is what quotes we pick out of it as best quotes, because we've got options. I've got a good one here. It's when Tormund follows up and says, no, it's pussy for me. <laughs> <laughs> and then just continues delightfully from there as he starts talking about his, you know, distant love affair with Brienne. Yeah, he I... starts describing Brienne, and then eventually the hound picks it up, and he goes, Brienne of fucking Toth? You're with Brienne of fucking Toth? And the hound, or the Tormund goes, I'm not with her, but I've seen the way she looks at me. <laughs> like she wants to carve you up and eat your liver? You do know her. I love that, that line. I love that <laughs> line so much. <laughs> oh, yeah. So good. Um, I also really just like the fact that Tormund thinks Brienne likes him. <laughs> where, yeah. where did that come from? Well, he's coming from wildling culture here, where any good spear wife feels obliged to make the man work for it, that you don't get what you don't take. So from his mind, playing hard to get is the basic part of romance. And I don't, I don't think he's going to be able to go in and capture her, though, in true wildling spirit. Well, we're going to cover a story about why he's named Husband of Bears later. But, uh, yeah, he's got a history of this. He also gives us one of the greatest uh, hashtags ever of where uh, he then continues to say, I want to make babies with her. Think of them great big monsters, which essentially led to the, the Twitter hashtag Team Monstrous Babies. And I'm down with that. And the hound says, how did a mad fucker like you live this long? I'm good at killing people. <laughs> Great we're gonna scene. To, we're going to need to divide this up into about four or five separate quotes for the competition. It's going to be hard. Very good. And then you have Barrick who's talking to John. I was looking forward to this, too, because Barrick and John have something in common. They both have died and have come back, um, presumably through the magic of the Red God. And Barrick makes the point that uh, John doesn't look like Ned, which I thought was a sort of funny point. Yeah, of course not. Says, maybe you look like, maybe you take after your mother. Which we know he does. 
Then Barak questions why the red god brought John back. And John has no idea. Um, he doesn't know. I don't think he's given it much. Well, he's given it thought, but I don't think he's given the red god much thought. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as I was watching this, like John's reaction, it's kind of like like this. All right, look, Spencer, I make no bones about it. I'm an atheist. Okay? Mm-hmm. And I feel like if, like, let's say I lost a foot. And a preacher came by and he was like, oh, praise Jesus, blah, blah, blah. And I grew another foot. And people were like, how'd that happen? I would I would respond exactly like John. It's like, the fuck if I know? I guess there's a God or something. But don't ask me to explain it. Like, I don't know. Yeah, sure. I guess there's a God. I mean, I got another foot, but I have no idea. Yeah. And, and this, this conversation plays out is then you then ask the preacher how it happened. And the preacher essentially shrugs and goes, hell if I know. There's a plan somewhere. I don't know what it is. I don't know. Said some words. He's got another foot. It's weird. But anyway, <laughs> Barrick, uh, Barrick is a true believer. I mean, he's he's uh, he's he's right there, and he says that he fights on behalf of the Red God, and then he proclaims that death is the enemy. Which I thought that that death is the enemy potentially could have been an episode title um, for this episode. It might have been better than North of the Wall, and I don't know. Let me back up, Spencer. Mm. You be the arbiter here. You be the judge and jury. Death there. is the enemy. Poetic mm-hmm. or cheesy? When Barrick says it, it come across, comes across as poetic. I could have this actor read out of the back of a cereal box and I would listen enthralled. That wow. this that could very much come across cheesy in lesser hands. But he makes this conversation about, uh, I fight for life. Death is the enemy. The first enemy and the last. It comes across as very powerful. And it very much embodies the theme that the show is going through all this season is that this is, we've made what was very much the Sopranos set in, set in um, a medieval setting into a good versus evil. We've gone straight into Lord of the Rings to this plot. And it is very much the army of the dead versus everyone who is not the army of the dead. And we need to come to terms with that. And yeah. so for a, a zealot to express this in that gravelly, wonderful way, it works. I'm, I'm willing to go with it, despite the fact that if I read it on the page, I would be very, very inclined to eye roll. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's the show. Uh, that show putting in work. And then, so the conversation basically goes. You know, he's, he says death is the enemy, and John's a little surprised. He's like, but we all die. And Barrick says, you know, yeah. Well, the, well the, the enemy always wins, but we have to fight. We we always fight, even though the enemy always wins. The enemy here, Spencer. I'm gonna call them the Golden State Warriors. They always I'm going win. Going to get a drink. I'll be back. They, you always. They are always gonna win. It's always going to be late third quarter. Steph hits two or three threes in a row. Boom, it's over. But you got to keep fighting. So death is the enemy, but the enemy always wins. That's the 2017-2018 Golden State Warriors. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. So the objective here of the Brotherhood and all the other living is to essentially prolong the game so it makes for an entertaining series? Yeah, just just try to get them to seven games. Just see what happens. Uh, okay. It's an, it's an interesting metaphor, but I'll go along with it. <laughs> Thanks. All right, we cut to Dragonstone. And let me just start this scene by saying that Danny is what I'm going to call pretty girl mean to Tyrion here. <laughs> Please is, go on. This is the type of mean that pretty girls do and they don't even know they're being mean. But she is so mean to him in this fucking episode. And I, I and Spencer, I'm interested to hear your take on this, but I'm Please. of the belief that Tyrion has fallen in love with Danny. Uh, I think he knows there is absolutely no way that Danny would ever be with him. But I do think he has fallen in love with her. And if you take that perspective, or not really, but especially if you take that perspective, damn it, Danny. Like, why are you so mean? I don't know if he's in love with her, but I think he's very much in love with her cause. 
that he from the very first moment we ever met Tyrion, he said he had a special place in his heart for cripples, bastards, and broken things. And Danny is one of the few people on this script that's actually fighting in support of those individuals. She's one of the few people that the rule that she proposes, the world that she wants to create, has a place for them, rather than just simply being on the margins of society. So I, I don't necessarily know if he's in love with her, but I do think he's actually fully enraptured with her cause. Well, we got a little spoiler alert for next episode. There might be might be a tidbit of evidence next episode. I, I remember what you're going to talk about. We will cover it then. <laughs> but anyway, this scene starts by Danny by the fire. And she says, do you know what I like about you? Tyrion says, I honestly don't, which would seem very, <laughs> very genuine. He's like, oh, now that you mention it, no, I don't know. And she says, you're not a hero. What the hell, Danny? <laughs> to which Tyrion really takes that on the chin. He's like, well, you know, the Battle of Blackwater, you know, I've done a few things. Yeah, it's like Westerosi roast battle. Like, Jesus, Danny, like, don't. <laughs> she do... Why are you just, like, coming in hot here? I like you because you're not a hero. What? She, she does dial it back. She does frame heroism as basically stupidly suicidal. And goes into, a, as Tyrion points out, an interesting list of who these quote-unquote heroes were. Mm-hmm. Yep, because uh, here I think Danny is clearly stressing that John went north of the wall um, for well-meaning reasons, but it was very, very stupid. And she <laughs> drives the point home that heroes uh, do stupid things, and she lists Drogo, Joro, uh, sorry, Drogo, Jorah, Dario, and even this Jon Snow. And then you, you shout out Peter Dinklage, his face just drops and it, it all comes together for him. He's like, hmm, okay. Yep, she likes John. I know it now. Yeah, and he calls her out on it. But it's interesting that John makes the list of your heroes, to which Danny immediately tries to deflect of where, oh, you know, just, you know. And to what Tyrion points out, she says, you know, John's not attracted to me. To which Tyrion points out, oh, my mistake. I suppose he stares at you longingly because he is hopeful for a successful military alliance, which I love the snark of that line. Me too, but did the show ever show us John staring longingly at Danny? No, but we've had other characters the, talk about it. We've yeah, had, Davos uh, talked about it. Yeah, staring at her. What was her? What was the her word? Good used? heart. Her good heart. Yes. Uh, but honestly, the shows you trying to use other characters talking about it to build up a relationship. They've not really showed us other than that one tender moment they had in the cave. Yeah, it's weird that they keep talking about John staring at her. But like in the scenes, and we covered this in previous episodes, the scenes I've seen, Danny is more earnest than John. Very much so. And I feel like this is a really example of how much they are trying to rush this. Of where This this episode, and last episode too, feels like they've decided to schmush about what could be a season worth of material and quality dialogue into an episode and a half. And so I felt like, they're, in many ways, their build-up to the relationship of John and Danny and making it, showing John's attraction to her, has kind of been accelerated to the point they feel the need to write it into the dialogue to justify it. Right. Well, Tyrion points out, okay, this list of people, these are, it's interesting. These are all men who's fallen in love with you, as you, as you mentioned. And yeah. uh, Danny does the little, like, schoolgirl teehee. Oh, Jon Snow's not in love with me. And uh, <laughs> Tyrion, uh, and then she says, um, uh, well, he's too little for me. And uh, <laughs> wow. Another yeah. blow landed on friend zone Tyrion here. That was that one's rough. But Tyrion, uh, you know, he bills her out. He says, yeah, as heroes go, he's, he's rather short. Uh-huh. Uh, Danny tries to make up for it, but it's uh, it's too little, too late. Oh my God, I'm good at this. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. The puns, the puns. You hurt Woo! me, sir. Professional broadcaster, right here. Uh, anything else you want to talk about with uh, that interaction about John and Danny? As said, 
they know where they want to go. They want the, their two story to be the song of ice and fire. They want this to be the central love story about which the whole series is going to be built on. And so they feel the need to take every opportunity to try to build it up because they haven't just they haven't given us enough scenes of the two of them together. And whether that works or not is kind of based on whether you think they are cute or not together. Yeah, and then Danny, moving on, Danny mentioned Cersei, and Tyrion drops a A-plus level T-bomb here about what would happen if Cersei ever gets her hand on Danny. Basically, like, she would just torture you. She'd whip you through the streets. I mean, and she would. Make no bones about it. Tyrion is, this is a truth bomb situation, but Danny does seem a little taken aback. I think that when you put it that way for Danny, it's... She, she was able to finally put herself in the situation like, oh, man, if I lose and Cersei gets me, what's going to happen here? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I took that acting to mean like she was just actually fi- kind of like, uh, finally kind of envisioning what would occur if she lost the battle or the war. And then, uh, you know, uh, Tyrion mentions that, you know, Cersei's planning some traps. Danny wants to know if, if we're planning traps. Tyrion, you're my hand. Are we planning traps? And, and Tyrion plays the holier-than-thou card and says, hey, look. We're supposed. We're above them. We are going to be better than them. You know, your your uh, ancestor Aegon. He built the wheel, but you're going to break the wheel. You once talked to me about breaking the wheel. That's what we're going to do. We don't lay traps, Spencer. Right. And he describes the the uh, concept of fear as a basis of rule as being a brittleness of their power. That he very much wants to build for her a stark kind of level of loyalty and love that can actually endure for generations rather than only survive as long as the fist is clenched. And he takes the time to really throw his own family under the bus with this, of where he talks about that um, Joffrey and Cersei and even Tywin, he says that their rules were built solely on fear and that you need to be better than that. You need to endure longer than that. And I'll, if, you, if you would choose to endorse the topic, I think the show and Tyrion have very much adopted a negative view of Tywin that not everyone does and is worth discussing. But it lends nicely into the idea that Danny needs to set a legacy here, and the next topic of their conversation, and well, which we'll get to in a second, is whether she can practically do that, given her present present circumstances. Yeah, there was a really great Twitter battle this week about Tywin, and was he a good hand? Was he a better hand than Ned? Was he a better hand than uh, John Aaron? Uh, it was started by Reddit user Brendan Blackfish, who is, uh, I mean, he has the hottest of hot takes. He's in the same he's, boat as he's you, great. Spencer. He's yeah, great. he's good, but he he really will stir the hornet's nest. But it was a, it was fun to watch. So, I yeah, uh, we, maybe we can discuss that later on. Um, then we get to uh, Tyrion basically saying, look, when we go to King's Landing, we're going to go with two armies and three dragons. If somebody touches you, we're going to burn King's Landing down to the Foundation Stones. Interesting that he says three dragons. Hmm. Maybe not so much. Yeah. Uh, then Tyrion uh, mentions that look, when we go, my brother has promised me that he will keep a, a, a he'll keep the Lannister forces at bay. And I'm kind of thinking like, when, <laughs> that's an interesting promise from Jamie. Like when the Dothraki and the Unsullied show up with two to three dragons, I don't think the Lannister forces are going to be itching for a fight. Like I don't think there's much to do to get them to chill. I think they're going to be totally fine with no battle. It's both a mix of that, and also as Danny rightfully calls him out on, you are asking me to trust a Lannister promise where I'm essentially going to, whatever army I bring, I'm marching into that room with a small enough group that they can do whatever they wish if they choose to, you know, try to pull the rug out from under me. You're asking me to just trust their reassurances that everything's going to be fine when you just told me that they're setting every trap for us and we're doing none in return. 
Agreed. I mean, the the spiraling of Tyrion's intelligence continues here. Like I, <laughs> this whole conversation. I mean, he gets. To be fair to Tyrion, uh, he gets mean girl punched a couple times early on, so maybe he was a little throttled. But man, it's not making a lot of sense what he's saying. But anyway, then he tells her that uh, Tyrion had promised uh, Jaime that he would make sure that Danny doesn't do anything impulsive. Uh, Danny takes an issue with that. She says, "No, oh, yeah. I've ever done that." And uh, the Tarleys come up. Um, Spencer, where do you land on this? Do you think the burning of the Tarleys uh, was necessary, as Danny believes it is, or impulsive and definitely unnecessary, as Tyrion believes? It really depends what she wants to be as the basis of her rule. It's a very, it, it is in some ways a effective mode if she wants to rule by fear. If she wants to truly say that the revolution I am bringing to break the wheel is a violent revolution, that it is willing to destroy the lords that persist this system. If that's the message that she wanted to go with, it works. If she's instead going for the message that seemingly all of her team have been putting forward, it was really off script. And as Tyrion points out, there's many other options that you had there. You just kind of painted yourself into a corner of thinking that was the necessary and only choice you had. And it's very much... It, 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 Danny's reaction in that scene was very in character for her. She's very disinclined to second-guess herself. One of her most repeated statements over the course of the series, particularly in the books, is, if I look back, I am lost. She very much likes to see the situation of, I'm going a path, I'm taking that path, don't make me think about it, don't make me second-guess it, that's the direction I'm going in. And Tyrion's really calling her to task that, if, if, if the situation was set up that you had no choice, that was your fault. Yeah, you're right. Um, I tend to side with Tyrion here. I don't think it was necessarily <clears throat> necessary to burn the Tarleys there. I also just don't think it's a good look. Um, from a uh, PR perspective, yeah. right? <laughs> because the, the news of that is going to travel, which we know it has because it already had traveled to Old Town in the last episode. So yeah, I think Tyrion makes a good point here. Um, but then he weirdly shoehorns in the succession conversation. Like, what? Like, why is he bringing that up? It, it needed to happen. I mean, apparently Tyrion is very much aware of the fact that she's infertile. Did they ever actually have that conversation? Ooh, good question. I don't know. She seems to tell anybody who will listen. Oh, she tells John. She tells Tyrion. I think that's about all we got right in this episode. She's just like running through the streets like. <laughs> can't have babies. Can't have, can't babies. have babies. Team Planned Parenthood. Yeah. Can't have babies. No, no accountability here. Uh, but I think it's a conversation that they really, if he knows this, this is a conversation they needed to have pretty much at the moment he became her hand. They're proposing a monarchy. They're not going to build a republic out of this. She's not going to be the, the elected president of this state. Maybe. We don't know. We don't know. He throws out the idea later. What they're officially saying is that she's going to be queen. The success of a monarchy is built on the succession. You build a dynasty. That's the only way it works. If they know for a fact that she can't have kids, which I'm not as certain as they are, apparently. Me um, nor is our Lord our God, Jon Snow. Nor, nor is Jon Snow, nor are the books. The books offer a few scenes that suggest she may not be uh, infertile. Um, then... Their monarchy is inherently flawed and going to fail unless they put a plan together now for how the succession is going to work. She either needs to adopt an heir, she needs to either marry somebody and bring in their existing child as their heir, or she needs to appoint someone or set up a means by which the succession will be handled. Otherwise, again, they're putting water in a bucket that's got a hole in it. They need, a, they need to have a clear plan for how this thing is going to hold together. And I think it's a conversation that they honestly should have had a long time before they even invaded. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I think it's a conversation that needs to happen. 
I just don't think it needs to happen right this second. I'm with it's you like there. A, it's, it's a, a w- weird time to bring it up. It's a weird because, transition. Yeah, I mean, Danny was clearly in a bad mood, and you know, Tyrion brings this up, uh, which is going to be a difficult conversation when they're already sort of bickering. Uh, it wasn't going to end well. Well, Danny finally says, look, let's just discuss the succession when I sit the throne and she walks out. One of the things she does, though, toward the end of the conversation, she's done it a couple times now. When she gets really mad at Tyrion, she suggests that Tyrion might be working against her. Like, oh, you know, you, you're, you're just siding with your family here. Maybe maybe you've been thinking about my death too much. Maybe that's something you discussed with Jamie when you were in King's Landing. Come on, Danny, You don't believe that shit. You know, here's a fun thing, though. I may... There's a there's a fan theory that I'm kind of with that Tyrion may be trying to broach the idea that Danny rules, but maybe then Jamie and Cersei's son rules after her. It could be a very effective means of trying to bring the two houses together, of setting a peaceful means of resolving this conflict. And there's <laughs> Spencer, man, you spent too much time on Reddit, man. You, you've you've heard this theory before, and I think it could be interesting. And I think there are some suggestions that. I mean, you've offered the idea that Tyrion's conflicted about some of the scenes that we'll see in the next episode because he's in love with Danny. I think his main point of conflict has been his conflicted loyalties for his own family. Um, and I'm willing to believe that there's been some negotiating off-scene for how to make this work. It'd be foolish not to for them to not develop a plan by which, okay, we've defeated the others, now what happens? It would be much more in keeping for Tyrion to actually have planned out some succession here. Yeah, okay. I mean, I, I, I don't, here's the thing. I don't believe it. I don't think that that's what Tyrion is going for here. And I don't think he had that discussion with Jamie. I also think that if he did have that discussion with Jamie, and this is what he was going for, it wouldn't be a particularly bad idea. Yeah. And I, I don't necessarily think it happened. I think it's possible. And I think if it didn't happen, it's something that needs to be considered. Yeah. Can, can you imagine Danny when he brings that up? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's that, pretty great. It's not going to go over well, particularly if the, well, if many things occur, as the show seems to be thinking they're going to occur between her and John. Uh, yeah, it's going to fall in like a lead balloon. Yeah, that's that's uh, that is not going to happen, Tyrion. If if that's what you're going for. All right, then we cut to north of the wall, and uh, it's storming really badly. And it's a lot of snow, and there's one of these red shirts is uh, is leading now, Spencer. This red shirt that's leading. I'm going to draw a little parallel here. Please. This is like the couple that goes off into the woods to have sex 15 minutes into the horror movie. Like, yeah. I'm watching this guy. I'm like, hmm, man, not going to happen. Like, it's like the, the high school quarterback and the cheerleader are like, yeah, we're going to go in the woods yeah. and, and have sex. And then, like, you, you hear, like, you know, the Jason music or something. That's exactly what's going on. This red shirt had a zero out of zero uh, chance of getting a life insurance policy here. He was going to die. And he does, um, yeah. but not and before Tormund sees something. I like the fact that Tormund saw it first. Spencer, your take? Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I very much was reminded the same way as you are. It's like, it's like the one girl that has already had sex in the movie is going alone into a dark house to have a, sh- to have a shower where she's already started to hear the music in the background, but she's still going. The one wildling also sees the bear. And kind of just keeps walking towards it. But yes, I like the fact that the wildling and Tormund are the ones that see the bear first. And it uh, quickly goes very south for our intrepid bunch of idiots. (laughs) Yeah, Tormund sees it. He points it out. Uh, The hound gives a little commentary. It's a bear. 
big fucker. And it was. Uh, the bear takes out the red shirt and attacks our, our group. I would like to point out here that when the red shirt gets taken out, Effin John runs up. He's the, he, by himself, runs right up to it. I'm telling you, Spencer, I think my theory that John has survivor's guilt and he has a death wish, I think I, there's so much evidence for it at this point. Show yeah, only. It's either that or it's shitty writing because it just keeps happening. And I, I love that this bear is apparently a homing missile for red shirts because it kills like three of them and only the three of them over the course of this fight. But I would like to point out he did not, the bear did not kill all of them because there's more red shirts in a resulting battle later in the episode. But we have a scene where our seven guys are all in a circle, you know, back to back, ready to fight the bear. My question to you, Spencer, where were these other red shirts? They were off screen talking with the director about what their uh, stage directions would be for the next battle scene. Getting the free tacos on set? Yeah, you know, there's always a free taco bar. You've got to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, so the the bear attacks, and uh, Barak and Thoros flame up their sword, and they hit the bear, which causes the bear to catch on fire. Does not kill the bear initially. The bear keeps attacking, and Sandor has a chance uh, to jump in and help here. He does not because the bear's on fire. He's scared of fire, and the bear bites Thoros and really violently shakes him about before... Like the only, like the smartest person in the room here, Jesus, who did no one think to use the dragon glass weapons? Uh, <laughs> and Jorah uh, comes in and finally does it and kills the bear. I don't get this at all. I don't get this at all. They, I mean, there's two things here. One thing, honestly, this is the first time we've ever had it confirmed anywhere that Obsidian works on whites. That's never been shown in the show before. That's never been shown in the books before. So at this point, they seem certain it would, but that was the first live fire test that Obsidian does also kill the zombies. However, given that they're apparently certain that it would, why are not all of them armed with it? Why throughout this entire climactic battle is Jorah the only one that's wielding Obsidian blades akimbo? Okay, why, what's right. going Spencer, on? Fair point by you. Point on the board for Spencer. You're right. They have not established in the show that um, up to this point that Dragonglass works on whites. But, but John but, has said it does. John has been certain that it does. So they apparently very much believed that going in, even if it hadn't been tested. Yeah. I'm still going to put a point on the board for you because that's a very good thing to point out that we've never actually seen it happen. I just wonder why nobody thought to just, hey, let's just give it a go. Like, I mean, <laughs> couldn't you have killed this bear within like the first 10 seconds he was it, upon you? Why are they just covered with the shit? Why don't they? Why they? Why don't they make literally obsidian armor? They're just walking around with inviting enemies to touch them. They, Ooh, we know they've been Iron mining Man. it. We know that Westerosi they have it. Westerosi Iron Man. That's nice. I like it, Spencer. I'm with this. I mean, one the only scene we have from the books of where someone tried to use obsidian on a white, and this is could be an effective reason for why they're not using it as their main weapons, is that Sam tries to stab a reanimated ranger with an obsidian dagger, and it breaks on the guy's armor. Because obsidian is famous, is famously sharp, but also famously brittle. So it could make sense that they don't want to use obsidian as their primary weapons because if they hit a guy in any place that isn't just soft flesh, it's going to shatter. But it's a bear. It doesn't have armor. Stab. Why don't they all have blades to stab it with? Because the moment Jorah just pokes it, it drops. Yeah, and let's just do a little fourth wall breaking here. The bear scene... We all know if you've uh, if you're a geek, if you're online, if you're checking Reddit, you're checking Twitter, you're checking Facebook. 
The bear scene happened because Benioff and Weiss for years now have wanted an undead bear to be in the show. Which is from the books. They have, they have said it multiple times. Exactly. It's from the books. But Spencer, is this really something we needed? No. No. Not at all, right? No. I mean, the purpose of this is just to do something cool to appeal to an audience that kind of has been wanting for, for wanting to know what the scope of undead things is. And a very important thing to provide a means to kill off Thoros. Cause and God knows how much it cost. How about this? Idea for you, Benioff and Weiss. Maybe you cut the dead bear. Maybe I get Ghost for a scene this season. <laughs> Why is Ghost not with them north of the wall? I don't know. It makes me crazy. Like, Ghost should absolutely be there. What the hell? They, they, they said they didn't have enough budget for it, but they had enough budget for a damn undead bear. Yeah, it catches on fire. I mean, this is Ghost's native climate. At this point, I don't even know where Ghost is. We've not seen him all season. They've kind of joked about the fact he's not around. Yeah, I, I don't understand it. I do know, though, that the blowback for no Ghost in this season was such that Benioff and Weiss have said, you will get Ghost. I got it. I understand. Yeah, You're but the last time they... are season eight. Yeah, the last time people complained about the fact there's not enough direwolves, they killed off, like, two in the same season. So let's not oh, give them and, ideas. Oh, they're going to kill Ghost. <laughs> they, kill ghost, a, a, they kill ghost we riot they kill ghost one out of ten percent chance he's got a ten percent chance of surviving the uh, season eight that's that's what i'm pegging it spencer i'm you know what i'm honestly betting uh well no i think it could be interesting if they actually do finally bring in the john as a white thing and have him go into ghost and that's the end of john yeah, I just don't think they have the precedent for that you know i don't think show. so you gotta think yeah there's just too many people who don't know that all right, um, Thoros is bit. Um, they Jorah, Jorah kills the bear, and then they look at Thoros, and it's a pretty bad wound, it looks like. And that's not surprising, because as I said, it was a pretty violent bite from the bear. Mm. And Beric asks Thoros, how are you? And he says, I just got bit by a dead bear. <laughs> Which, fair point. Yeah, you're not too good. You got bit by a dead bear. Yeah, uh, uh, and then Thoros uh, takes a big chug of uh, rum, and Beric cauterizes the wound with his magic flaming sword. And they're off. There's no time for your guts to hang out, sir. We have a plot mission to accomplish. Yeah, terrible. I mean, Spencer, why didn't they just kill Thoros here? Why Why didn't he just die here? It makes so much more sense. You're going to kill him later anyway. I don't know. I mean, I think they, they want to get a little bit more banter out of him before they're done with him. They want to just add some ambiguity about who's going to live, who's going to die. But at this point, they're close enough to Eastwatch that they sh- John should have just ordered him to go back. And that would have been an effectively either death of his character or leaving of his character. But everyone is being propelled around by powers of plot. And so they all must make it to the end event. Except for every, except for our two surviving, except for everybody, but the two surviving wild thing, red shirts, all of them can die to prove the situation is dramatic and dangerous. Yeah. Who were getting tacos during this scene, but they come back. They do come back. All right. We're done with that scene. We go to Winterfell. Sansa in full crisis mode is uh, West Wing walking around and she's with Littlefinger now. So, you know, she's a little bit uh, desperate and she's basically saying like, I I just don't know what Arya is going to do with the note. I don't, you know, the Northern Lords can't find out and Littlefinger like, and and what they've done with Littlefinger here. You know what this is? I got a parallel for you here. Spencer, you ready for it? Please. Uh, Littlefinger in seasons one through four is Michael Jackson during the Billie Jean thriller area era, right? Oh, okay. Explain. And, and Littlefinger in this season is like 
black or white Michael Jackson, like the sort ah. of like hanging the baby out the window, um, <laughs> living <laughs> I got off a Ferris wheel in my front yard type of deal. Living off the prior royalties, but with little current direction for where he's really heading in his life. Yeah, but if you were watching him moonwalk at the Motown honors, like in the like early '80s, and then you watch him hang a baby out the window, you're like, "There's no way that's the same guy." I had the same thought listening to Little Finger in this scene. I'm like, "There's no way this is the same guy." I'm like the shit he's saying is just so stupid. But anyway, he starts trying to like not so subtly bring up the fact that some of the Northern Lords probably prefer Sansa at this point to John. Which Sansa, all right. Point on the board for Sansa here. I give her some credit. She accurately points out just how, you know, all over the place the Northern Lords are. I think she even calls them bloody wind vanes, which, pff, line of the episode? Maybe? Maybe it's from Sansa? Line. Upset alert! It's a good line. It's a good line, and it needed to be... I feel like in many ways, I don't know if the show is poking fun at itself or trying to justify itself at times here. Because they're pointing out a lot of the things that were completely... Characters are pointing out the dumbness of various things that we're complaining about. Is that their way of trying to co-opt our criticism to say that, yes, it's dumb, but it's dumb within the plot. It's not dumb because of the plot. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe. But does that make you feel any better about no. it? No. God, no. Yeah, me neither. So it's like, okay, great. But yeah, I mean, Littlefinger's so ham-handed here. And then he like throws out this idea, which I don't even know that I understood, that Sansa could somehow use Brienne to protect herself from Arya because Brienne was sworn to protect her and Arya and therefore any conflict between the two I guess would be a problem for her and so she should use Brienne somehow Spencer's there something I'm not understanding here I mean to a degree he's engaging in a bit of what I would like to call Socratic chaos of where he's just kind of trying to put ideas in Sansa's head to see if they'll fester and just let her reach her own conclusions with them which is to a certain degree classic Littlefinger but as said it comes across as ham-handed for what he is suggesting she do with Brienne I'm is he straight up suggesting that you need to have Brienne go kill Arya for you or is he just trying to suggest that Brienne could mediate and then let Sansa extend it to its full ex- to, to uh, the ultimate violent conclusion I have no idea. Like when I, I, I've watched this episode in a, probably an embarrassing amount of times, considering how bad it is, and I have no idea what the hell he was suggesting there. And I actually kind of like you. What you just said is that he's basically just kind of throwing things against the wall, right? He's just putting something in Sansa's head and seeing where it goes. But my problem with that is there's no end game. And what we have been conditioned to know about Littlefinger is that he has an end game usually. I mean, he, he at least is thinking a few steps ahead. He's not an idiot, right? Yeah. So I just don't. I, I again, I can't recognize him. Uh, this is this is late '90s Michael Jackson. I, I just don't get it. It, we're, someday we're going to watch season one together and talk about it on this podcast, and it's going to be fascinating to see Littlefinger Prime. See Littlefinger and Varys bantering with each other is going to be such a stark contrast to what we've seen over the last couple seasons of him. Stark. Like it. Thank you. Yep. Good work by you. Okay, we cut to North of the Wall, and this is a very long scene. I'm going to do my best to do a little recap here. I'm going to have to break it up into multiple... Uh, sections, but we start with uh, Jorah and Thoros. We actually referenced this scene, I think, last episode, Spencer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jorah and Thoros do have a shared history. They both were at the siege at Pike during mm-hmm. the first Greyjoy rebellion during the reign of King Bobby B. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, Thoros or Jorah asked Thoros, you know, how drunk were you um, <laughs> when you charged oh, through very. the gates at Pike? Uh, and Thoros, fucking T bomb here, says, "I be honest, I don't even remember." Uh, charging through the breach at Pike. Some of the lads told me about it the next day. 
And Jorah looks a little deflated and he says, I thought you were the bravest man I ever saw. And Thoros says, just the drunkest. Yeah. And I, a lot of people laughed at that, ep- uh, that, that scene. I thought it was 10 out of 10 sad. I did too. This moment, I mean, Jorah earned his knighthood by following Tormund into the breach. This is why, Tor- why Jorah is known around Westeros for his bravery in that battle. Well, hold on. Thoros into the breach, not Tormund, right? Sorry, yeah, I followed Thoros into the breach. My mistake. Point for uh, me. Point for me. <sighs> shut up. Um, but this moment is, you know, it's spun by bards. They're, they sing about this in taverns of the two of them charging into the breach at Pike together to defeat the Greyjoy Rebellion. This is how he earned his knighthood. This is how he earned a substantial portion of his reputation. And so to have the man that he followed in the death just kind of flippantly say, eh, don't remember. Heard, heard it was a great scrap, though. You can just see how deflated he is by this. This is not the moment that he wanted to share between a character that he very much knows is dying. He wanted to have this little personal connection with him. And Thoros is too honest to let him have it. Yeah, but I also think there's a sadness in Thoros. Yeah, You know, he, he knows what he is. And this is him saying, yeah, I'm dying, but what I was in life was just a drunk, you know, and it, it's, it's a sad moment. Sorry to everybody who thought that was funny, but I certainly did not. <laughs> and from there, we come across what appears to be, I guess, what, a scouting group of the Army of the Dead? Yeah, so then we look and we get another nice drone shot. And at this point, Tormund is leading the group, which, shout out, like he should have been the whole time, right? Yeah. And he sees a raging white walker. There's one white walker and a handful of whites around him. My question to you, Spencer, is what the hell is this white walker doing? I have uh, um, The only way I can explain a lot of what occurs over the next 40 minutes of this episode is that the Night King is trying to lure them into traps. Because otherwise it makes no sense. Why is he wandering with like eight guys? Why are they uh-huh. out apparently so far ahead? Not This also doesn't make sense to me. There's framed as being so far ahead that they're they can't even tell where the rest of the army of the dead is. But apparently the rest of the army of the dead is just kind of sitting quietly behind a corner, like 400 yards away, so they can sprint after them. A lot of this doesn't make any sense to me at all. No, it doesn't. And I, it, sadly, I think that what they want us to assume is that the Night King has White Walkers just range. But that doesn't really make a lot of sense. I mean, there's a it lot doesn't. of better ways he could do that. He could probably give the ranging White Walker, I don't know, more than like eight whites, considering he's got over 100,000, yeah. right? Uh, but one thing I, now I would like to point out here, shout out to the show, is there's a little bit of consistency, consistency here because we see the White Walker and his whites come upon a fire. And I think that the casual viewer probably thought that that fire was started by our group of guys, right? Mm-hmm. I do not think that at all. And I think it actually lends some consistency to what happens later in the episode. What do you think? I I think there's only two possibilities here. Either A, they went up and set that campfire as a trap for them, which makes no sense. They wouldn't have time to do it. They're doing a quick ambush right now. Or, as you said, it's suggesting there are other people at play in this what's about to occur. I think there was another person uh, watching these events, and he had uh, lit this fire, and he has since fleed. Well, anyway... Because they come upon the fire, the White Walker's a little confused. He's looking around. And then our heroes descend. Uh, John smartly goes after the White Walker. (laughs) Very important that he engage him first. Uh, They start fighting. And then John eventually kills the White Walker. By my count, that's the second White Walker he has killed. And all of the Whites fall except for one. How convenient, Spencer. Yeah. And the show really doesn't... The characters offer the explanation that... Oh, it's just the ones that he turned that dropped. A, I don't buy that at all. And B, 
way, 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 way too convenient that he brought eight guys that he turned and Steve, who's a friend of a friend. Um, it, <laughs> Good line, Spencer. Woo. It, it really just, I know the show wants to represent that this is how they're learning how they can defeat the White Hawkers, that they're truly a keystone army, that they can, that if you decapitate the head, the rest of the body is going to die. This is our, how the ultimate victory is going to occur. But right here, right now, it just, it looks so goddamn convenient. They just, they're perfectly left with one that they've already surrounded, that even the wildlings are beating up on this little zombie guy that's left behind, who I've now dubbed Steve, and let's just keep calling him Steve so we have a name for him. Yeah, Steve. Uh, he is Steve. He's very much a Steve. Steve the taco stealer. Okay. <laughs> okay, now we're confusing Steve with the wildlings who are also taking tacos. Or are they all in the same set, off-scene, eating tacos a, I think together? it's the same extra. That's my, my fan theory. Uh, oh, God. Okay. <laughs> so... We've got Steve, we've got the collection of Steves, the taco eaters here working together. And <laughs> it, it, yeah, none of this. This is so damn convenient that they're left with one. That they developed oh. this theory that any if they kill him, all the ones that they turned. Which, for one thing, we've never actually even seen any wildling other than the Night King turn people. Yeah, you sorry, know, any Spencer, any White Walker other than the, the Night King turn people. You, you know what I thought when all the White Walkers or all the Whites fell except for one? What'd you think? I, th- I just remembered how much I liked Westworld. <laughs> the thought that occurred to you? <laughs> yeah, I was like, damn, Westworld is really good. I don't know, just random. Anyway, uh, then they say, okay, well, we're going uh, we're, we're gonna to capture this one white because it's fallen in our lap. And they uh, tackle him. It's actually Tormund, badass scene. Um, I don't know. It's not really badass. It's a terrible scene. But anyway, Tormund <laughs> is a badass. And he just kind of drops his axe and gives him a, an old right roundhouse and it knocks the white down. Uh, the hound jumps on him, and the white lets out a very high-pitched scream, mm-hmm. uh, which is just bad news for everybody involved. And the hound tries to put his hand over the white's uh, mouth. He gets bit, shakes it off, does it again. And John starts looking around, and he hears what amounts to an avalanche. And he, I guess, just knows that that means the army's coming. I don't know. He, yeah, <laughs> and, and, and again... How is the bulk of the army of the dead this close? They would Spencer, have heard it. They would Spencer, have seen it. Are you getting arrested right now? Uh, there's apparently a cop going by, and no, not this time. I dodged Ooh, that bullet. Not today. Okay. But good. Returning to the point. Yeah, sure. <laughs> See, well, hold on. I would like to point out, and, and I'll let you get to point. That we think this is so bad. This is why this podcast is descending into silliness. Like, yeah. I'm sorry, listeners. We <laughs> love laugh you very or much. Cry we just don't like this episode. I know this show just kind of stopped believing in scouts in like season two, but wouldn't they have just gotten a little higher on the ridge and looked over and seen the entire army of the dead, like 400 yards away? Wouldn't they have heard it marching? Wouldn't they have smelled it? I mean, furthermore, why did they only bring like four white shirts? Why didn't they bring like, a hundred wildlings. I, I like that we're calling them white shirts now. They are now white shirts. No more red shirts, shirts for this show. Yeah, no, they're covered in snow. Yeah. And, and, nothing of this makes sense, including what happens next, of where they've done the successful ambush, they've got their guy, they know the army of the dead is coming, and they turn to Gendry and just say, start running, go let them know that we need help. Yeah, I don't know what John thinks is going to happen here. Um... But if the army of dead is coming after you, he then tells Gendry, run all the way back, send a raven to Daenerys, let her know what's happening. Like, 
What? Like, it's not an email that you're sending. Uh, like, this is going to take a long time. But anyway, and what, what, that's what he does. Why do they then run in a different direction from the direction that Gendry's running? They yeah, know they, the way Gendry's running is the way back home. They instead go in a direction they've never gone in before. They run into a closed canyon because they decide, let's take a brand new path when we know we're already being chased. Why? I'll tell you why, Spencer, because the only possible way that they could survive this is if they get on an ice island. Which they know is there already? I suppose so. Uh, But anyway, they run toward the ice island. And uh, they get there and ice begins to crack under them. Again, how convenient. But they say, ah, well, we can't stop now because the army of the dead is coming. They run. They get to what looks like a big rock um, Mm -hmm. island type thing in the middle of a, a kind of a quarry. Mm-hmm. Uh, or a, a small lake, and the army of the dead come, and the ice breaks under them, breaks all the way around. As we know, the in the show anyway, the whites can't swim, and so now we have our heroes on the rock in the middle of this lake, and all of the whites are watching them. And one thing that may make this a bit of a poetic callback of where that kind of arrowhead tower in the mountain, uh, arrowhead uh, mountain in the distance. And uh, this kind of little ridge in the lake, several aspects of the background they're depicting look very much like the scene of when the first uh, White Walker was created, when the children of the forest surrounded him. Several images from that scene are being played out again, as if they are very much returning to the place of where the White Walkers were created for this moment. Yeah. But Well, then we're left with our guys in the center of this lake. They're on a rock, and the whites are just waiting uh, yeah. because the, uh, the the water isn't frozen now. So that's where we end up with. And, of course, we lose, it. we lose another wildling in this scene because, again, they're the only ones that can die. We can only keep on losing white shirts. Right. Everybody else is under contract. And uh, then we cut to uh, what I'm going to call 1970s Bruce Jenner Gendry here. Uh, Just decathlon athlete of Westeros. And he is just booking it. He's running. And then he falls down. And you were led to think that he has passed out before he could get back to the gates. But oh, how convenient. He is actually in front of the gates of Eats Watch. And out comes Davos with some people. And Davos picks him up. And he says, Ravens. We have to send a raven. Uh, okay, l- l- let's talk about something here. How far away from the wall do we think the show is suggesting they are? You know, actually, it's funny that you say that. Uh, I think that a Redditor actually tried to do the math on it, and they came up with something like five miles. Okay, I think that's fairly accurate because they don't show more than like three or so hours passing. Gendry clearly arrives at the wall the same day that he left, and it's just a little more dark out than when he started. So clearly he didn't run for more than a few hours. It's horrible conditions. These are not conditions that he can run a marathon over. He's running a complex terrain. He's climbing icy cliffs. It's the middle of the worst winter the world has seen in a thousand years. He's not going to go far. The wall's 700 feet high. If it's on a flat plane, which we see from the top of the wall, it is a flat plane going out for almost as far as the eye can see. The wall can see 32 miles to the horizon. I did the math on that. Big brain on Spencer. If they are that close, the wall can see the army of the dead. None of this makes sense. 
No, it doesn't. Uh, you know, and sorry, folks. I know we're descending into real negativity here. Spencer, let's try to pull ourselves out of it, okay? I can't. Let's I not. Can't. Let's not lose the. Let's not lose the listener. Um, I'll try. Shout out to Gendry. Shout out to Gendry. Uh, he did. He did fulfill his mission. He got there. Uh, Davos clearly does send the Raven, but then we cut back, and the guys are still waiting. And there's frost on their hair, and then they're trying to sleep, but they're trying to sleep like, you know, sitting up and. What the hell? The hound just goes over and kicks the white for no reason. Like, yeah, just because. What are you doing? But anyway, they look and, and they see uh, Beric checks on Thoros and Thoros is dead. And I'm going to throw this in for line of the episode only because, you know, you're a big fan of character development. I think this is a bit of character development. The hound reaches down or, or squats down and says they say it's one of the better ways to go. Yeah. And he was trying to make Beric feel better in that moment that Thoros at least died in a way that didn't hurt him mm-hmm. on the way out. And that is not something the Hound would have done in previous seasons. No, and it, it ties into that peaceful moment that uh, the Hound and Thoros had together when they were burying the bodies of the uh, farmer and his daughter as well. Of where it is indeed a moment of where he's actually empathizing with another person. He's trying to make another person deal with pain easier and of course him being the hound he also steals the flask and starts chugging it but the hound can only go so far he does take the rum and john snatches the rum out of his hand pours it on thoros and basically says we have to burn his body my question to you spencer now you you just said you did the math on it you're a big math guy everybody knows that tell me this rum greater than or less than one more white (laughs) uh well a it is a myth that rum will actually help you deal with the cold better. So if we're intending it for that St. Bernard has the rum around its neck kind of purpose, it wouldn't be useful. But oh, for the no, per- no. I'm, t- I'm talking about drinking for fun. Oh, yeah. We need that desperately right now. They're in a shit situation. They need anything they can possibly do to cope with that. Also, why don't they already have a fire? <laughs> it's freaking cold. They know whites hate fire. Make a fire right now anyway. They should have already had one blazing. They also don't want the ice to melt, right? They're not so... on ice. They're on a rock in the middle of ice. And right, plus, but I'm don't... saying that the ice around them, wouldn't it make sense to have a heat source to stop the the ice that's cl- or the water that's close to you? Very much true. Very right? very so, much so. And Yeah, it would just make sense to build a fire. And we know that Beric and Thoros, RIP, uh, have some magic ability to make their sword catch on fire. Yeah, two, two points there. I will compliment the show that the scenes of them running to the uh, little island in the middle of the ice lake are gorgeously shot and terrifying. They really do build some effective tension as the Army of the Dead is rapidly surrounding them and approaching them. And many of the shots that they film of the Army of the Dead just sitting utterly tranquilly surrounding them as their hope slowly fades are beautifully shot and beautifully done. And I could never take away from the show that the quality of their filming has only gotten better over the years. Yeah, and that's a really good point, Spencer, because, you know, obviously millions of people are going to listen to this because we're professional podcasters. Indeed. And I, I don't want the people who produced this show, who shot this show, who were on set to, uh, you know, be a target of our aim right here, right? Like, I, I want to point out that they did a great job. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a beautifully shot show, a uh, beautifully shot episode. Uh, the scene in particular is, is great, but I just don't like the writing. I don't like the plot. No. We criticize because we love. We're here. The only reason we're doing this is because how fond we are of the show. Even at its worst, and we are pretty damn close to it with this episode, we still are here talking about it and having fun doing so. Absolutely. So shout out to the show. Great job by the production crew. So we're getting back positive. Thank you, Spencer. All right. Uh, we're finding ne- our groove again. Uh, negative, because I have to take that away right away. Uh, previously, the show is... <laughs> 
Previously, the show established that the way they light these swords on fire is by cutting their own hand and drawing blood. Over the course of this episode, he just kind of rubs the blade and it sets fire, it, clearly yeah. not cutting through it. And another, another scene, he just kind of poses and goes full Jedi Knight if he just activates the sword. So yeah, there were, the lightsaber, yeah, he pressed the button. They're playing real fast and loose with what's required to activate these mystical lightsabers of theirs. I actually had that in my notes to discuss, like, how do they actually get this thing to catch on fire? Because it's it's not at all consistent or apparent. Yeah, it's very distinctly shown. The only other time we'd seen this before the scene that they he slices his hand, he draws his blood. It's the literal Lord's blood that's in him that set, sets the magic flame alight. Now it just seems to be like an act of will of they're just flipping the switch on the lightsabers. Yeah. Well, and then, uh, of course, he lights uh, Beric, lights his sword, lights Thoros on fire. And then we cut to the Hound is bored yet again. Yeah. Uh, Dangerous things decides, happen. Dangerous things happen when the Hound is bored. And, and so he starts throwing rocks at the whites. Now, here's my question to you, Spencer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. John is a leader such that he can snatch the rum out of the Hound's hand. And the Hound says nothing about it. And John can't stop him from openly antagonizing the whites? What? Don't yeah. you think John would have had the wherewithal to say, hey, th- th- there's nothing good that's going to happen from this. Stop yeah. doing that. You know, John's cold. You know, he's had a rough night. I mean, him and Barrick essentially just talked about what their options are. And they basically agreed that their options are, A, Danny saves us. Or B, we just go suicide run and try to kill the Night King because we've got a new Keystone Army theory. So there's a certain amount of depression and cold that may be at play in his decision-making with how he lectures the Hound about anything. And yeah. can, can we agree that they are very much setting this up now as if this is not... Well, the only way any of this makes any sense ever is that this is a trap for the, the Night King is setting for Danny now. Yeah, I mean, well, we, let's 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 touch on that theory at the end of the episode. Sure, but sure, I, sure. I agree that's the only way any of this makes sense. And I fear that that's a sort of... Uh, answer that we created before we had the question um yeah yeah. so jorah then during this whole like uh uh, the hound getting some pitching practice in comes up to john and uh, you know like i got to nominate this for the most obvious line of the episode comes up and says we would all freeze soon thanks thanks jorah Thanks. thanks jorah really helpful I thought we were just going to live here forever. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm. we're from the north. We're, this is just normal winter for us. Come on, Jorah, give us something positive, please. Yeah, and then John and Jorah kind of piece together this stupid thing that whites die when the white walkers that die turn them. I don't know. This is the, the, <laughs> clearly the, the, the writers just feeding the audience that line. Yeah. John says Danny's their only hope. And then Barrick. Oh, my God underdog here i did not think anyone could come up with a worse plan than what Tyrion did last episode but beric does here he says oh no there's another one we can just kill him and he just points at the night king like okay yeah beric what are you gonna do just like walk up to him like i don't even know what he is he's proposing here but it's stupid yeah it's one of those things where you just kind of look around there but anybody bring a bow no okay beric shut up there's right. like ten thousand of them between us and them yeah, and the Hound actually, um, <laughs> shout out to the Hound. He's like, careful, Beric. <laughs> You're on your last life here. Your priest is dead. Which which is, again, the reason that Thoros is dead right now is to add dramatic tension. Is that with Thoros around, anybody can come back. With Thoros gone, anybody can die. And so they tease us with that possibility. And then as we're going to see, they refuse to pull the trigger at all. 
Yeah. Anyway, we cut to Winterfell, and Maester Wolken gives Sansa a raven. The raven is inviting her to King's Landing, uh, presumably for a summit uh, with all of the warring factions and a white that I guess everybody assumes they're going to get. I feel like this invitation is a little bit uh, jumping the gun, right? I mean, they don't have the white yet. Yeah, it's really premature, particularly that they're setting a date on it. That's betting on a lot of factors that they can't reasonably control. They haven't ordered the white shipped by FedEx yet. They don't have a security certified delivery date by which they know the white's going to show up. They don't. Yeah, know, they don't have that prime. They have not. They are not prime members. There's no two. There's no two day guaranteed delivery of white to your front door. They, they at this point they don't even know they're going to get one, much less having the opportunity to set a date by everyone needs to be there to see it. Right. Yeah, that's it's just inconsistent. I mean, there's no way that they would already start sending out ravens for this meeting, uh, knowing. I mean, this isn't like a, a plane trip, right? Like it's it's a long time for yeah. somebody from Winterfell to get to King's Landing. So, ugh, again. But anyway, uh, Sansa, weirdly enough, uh, sends Brienne. He says uh, she says that uh, she's not going to King's Landing as long as long as Cersei is ruling, and she asked Brienne to go. On her behalf, Brienne is not excited about this. Actually, suggests that um, she can at least leave Pod behind to help protect Sansa. And Sansa basically does that. I don't need protecting. I've got hundreds of people here who will protect me. Mm-hmm. And Brienne finally has to say, "Okay, I'll, I'll go. I'll leave." Uh, what do you think of her sending Brienne away like this? It feels like it's in some ways in direct response to what Littlefinger just told her. Yeah, you're reading my notes. I actually, that was like the first time I thought, okay, thank God. The show is not really going down this road of Sansa versus Arya, right? Mm-hmm. This is where Littlefinger suggests it, and Sansa goes, okay, Littlefinger's trying to use Brienne against us in some way. I'm going to get her out of here. Right. I, I, I think that could be a reasonable interpretation of what she's doing here, of where that, okay, Brienne's now being put forward as a possible a uh, wedge between the two of us is a possible factor that I either could back Arya or me if we ever go out, go off kilt and try to kill each other. Let's just put that gun away and get her out of the situation. And- exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that, and so in that respect, like I, after the scene, I was kind of breathing a little bit easier. I was kind of exhaling a little bit, thinking, all right, well, that plot point's probably going to resolve itself fairly soon. Mm-hmm. All right, we can move on to Dragonstone, where, and man, shout out to the CGI folks. Like, the, oh, these yeah. dragons, as they're sleeping, it looks so realistic. And I, I know that in, like, 20 years, I'm going to look back on it and be like, man, you're an idiot for thinking that, right? Like we do with all visual technology. But, man, I thought they just looked incredible. Between the dragon CGI and the costuming, again, I love how whenever Danny's going, off to war or she's meeting for a diplomatic event she puts on a dragon dress she puts on a dress that looks like scales and i love the fact that she's apparently got a white dress just for going north she wasn't certain that she was going to do it but she had the dress prepared just in case do you think she has like a red dress for going to the westerlands and like a yellow one for going to the stormlands you know she's a lady of class there are certain (laughs) things expected of a female representative of a diplomatic state she needs to be able to put the best foot forward and you do that by best fitting into your environment so i think this is definitely Mm, yeah yeah she's definitely upstairs not downstairs that's true she is uh she is the elite at this point she's walking out she sees the the dragons and Tyrion is behind her uh whinging i guess you could say Uh, Mm -hmm. look at that uh and basically saying what are you doing danny clearly has gotten the raven at this point and she has decided to act Tyrion hits her with a line i really like the line i'm going to nominate it for best line of the episode you can't the most important person in the world can't fly off to the most dangerous place in the world he also 
backs that up. It's a back to back situation. Um, because he then he explains like, you know, they knew the risk when they left. And, and Danny's like, No, I'm not going to do nothing. You told me to do nothing before I'm not going to do nothing. And he says, if you die, we're all lost. Everyone, everything. And he is right. Yeah. Um, do we need to discuss the idea of a raven with apparently a jetpack propelling it? Or should we just leave that one on the cutting room floor? You know, I think with all of the inconsistencies and problems with this episode, that's probably one of the more uh, minor ones, but is valid, obviously. I, I looked up the numbers because, you know, me and numbers. Uh, apparently in the wild, ravens average about 25 miles per hour and can only go about 100 miles a day. Um, in captivity, they can go up to like 48 miles per hour for short distances. But they're not carrier pigeons. I mean, carrier pigeons can famously go average like 50 miles per hour over like 400 miles distance. But even with that, Dragonstone's like 2,000 miles away from the wall. That yeah, th takes a lot of set, time. I think they've set ravens up in this world uh, to being... be like carrier pigeons, right? Like they, they are the, obviously, like why would they choose ravens to, you know, uh, move their communications back and forth, right? To, to send uh, scrolls back and forth to distant locations if they weren't uh, the bird that could fly the longest distance. I mean, they could well be the bird that flies long distance, but that could just mean that there isn't a better alternative. But even if we accept that they're carrier pigeons, carrier pigeon isn't making that trip over the course of a day. It's going to need to take breaks. It's going to need to roost down for a couple nights. Otherwise, it's going to be dead before it even gets there, if it even gets there. Now, to be fair, I did see some uh, Reddit posts. I saw some people talking about how long it actually takes a lake to freeze. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's not in one day. It does take a while. So I think obviously the timeline screwed up here, but it's not as if we're meant to assume, or at least I don't, that the Raven got there in like an afternoon. And I that could well very be the case, but then it necessarily suggests that they had enough supplies or the means of surviving, despite the fact that they just kind of sprinted to this lake in the middle of a frozen wasteland for multiple days. The yeah, timeline's yeah. messed up. They're just kind of asking us to trust them and go along with it. But any way you look at it, some aspect of it doesn't make sense. Because even yeah. however long it took the raven to get there, her dragons now have to fly back the same distance to a location that they don't know where it is. Yeah. I, look, I get it. <laughs> I'm with you, Spencer. Uh, we, we got positive there for a minute. Now we're back on the, uh, on the yeah, negative train. It, it took trying to pull herself out of it. It took Robert a month. To get there, to get to Winterfell from King's Landing, and Winterfell's like another six hundred miles to the wall, and then they're beyond the wall. So, okay, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I've I've ranted enough. I'm breathing Ooh, again. Man, <sighs> take Go a on. knee, Spencer. Take Go a on. knee. Uh, pat the forehead. Calm down. Okay. Uh, all right. We cut back to north of the wall. The Hound still bored, still throwing things at the damn whites, and <laughs> he noodle arms one. He he's he, he's short with one. And it hits the ice, and it slides toward the white. And the white looks down, looks up, seems to make the connection that the ice is now melt, or the ice is now, uh, the water is now ice, and he can walk on it, and starts to walk forward. Here's my question for you, Spencer. This doesn't make any sense to me. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that whites could like be. I didn't know the whites had logic. Like it seems like the white is thinking. He looks down. Okay, I can walk. Okay, I go. That seems completely inconsistent with what we've seen with Whites thus far. I will say that is very much inconsistent with the show. Book, it at least has a possibility. 
of where there is a suggestion that the dead maintain some degree of residual knowledge either to themselves or by, to which the thing animating them can gain access to. Of what we see with it when rangers are reanimated, they're able to prepare like ambushes of where they know exactly where the Lord Commander's room is, and they go to the Lord Commander's room, and they hide ready to ambush him when he comes in. That suggests a certain level of consciousness. It may not be theirs, but it maintains some degree of existence. I agree, though, the show has done nothing to suggest that they're in any way reanim- that they're in any way may- able to make individual decisions, beyond simply what we saw of them preparing an ambush early on. Yeah, and now all of a sudden, like, he's... he's- able to deduce that oh this this stone slid here so now i can go but anyway it happens he starts going and it it does hurt the theory that this is all an ambush prepared for danny because if they're able if they were all just individually waiting till they individually can go then this isn't the night king holding them back until danny gets there which is why that theory that this was all a trap for danny to me is a way of apologizing for the show yeah it is um yeah uh, anyway, the the whites start to go. Weirdly enough, they start going like one at a time. Yeah. They don't all start running. And this also, to me, like was inconsistent because I thought the only explanation for this is they understand that they can't put all their weight on this ice at one time. Yeah, they they're not making that. What what the hell? They, the whites. Uh, anyway. Oh, sorry, mop, listeners, but mop I'm, your I'm brow, sir. Mop your brow. Let's get through it. Anyway, they're going one at a time and. You know that that uh, I like the score here because the oh, score. Yeah. Um, shout out Raymond Waldy. Like it starts to to really pull your blood your blood pressure up, right? Because uh, you know, dun, 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 you know, and everybody's coming, and they start fighting. They start fighting them off one at a time, but increasingly more and more of the whites are coming toward them. Mm-hmm. And man, these uh, red slash white shirts are dying left or right, Spencer. <laughs> it's it's are not white, good for them. Are what I like that our white shirts actually do put up a good fight. We see both of the white shirts very distinctly in several shots, cutting through these zombies without without too much difficulty. So I do like that at least here the white shirts stand their own. They both die. They both clearly die before any of our characters even take a little bump on the head. But at least they get a little bit of a fight in before they do. Question for you: If you have the warhammer from Gendry. Why not continually break the ice around you? Because reasons. Okay. And uh, so they're fighting. And Tormund actually is our first like main character who runs into real problems. He's about to be pulled under. And he and and this is like kind of out of character for Tormund. You freaks he screams, out. help me. Yeah, he screams, help me. And who helps him? The hound. You're the one they call the dog. Yeah. <laughs> I said you were mean. Ah, it's interesting that they would have this moment where they're discussing or just talking earlier. Uh, and, and I guess somehow Tormund made a impression on the hound or the hound now is just a person who saves everybody, but he does go out of his way to make sure that he saves Tormund and he does pulls Tormund out of the water, but they are, I mean, they're taking heavy fire. I mean, there's just whites yeah. are just coming at him. So John yells, fall back, fall back. I didn't know they had a place to go to. Like, I didn't know there was somewhere they feet. could fall back to. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but they run, I guess up the rock. Yeah. So they're now at the top of this rock. The whites are coming. By my count, I think Jorah is taking out the majority of them. What do you think? Well, he's got, and this is a question I have for you. Has the show ever cleanly established what you need to do to put down a white? I mean, no. And it's very inconsistent because if you'll notice that if a white is just a skeleton, they shatter. Yeah. But if they are, they have clothes on, they don't. They just kind of fall down. Because they're played by actors. Yeah. Um, I, we forgave this in Hard Home because that episode was so incredible. We'd forgive anything oh about it. Oh my God, Hard Home! Woo. But fr- 
in, in the books, it's made very clear that it's hard to put down a white. Unless you catch them on fire, they don't drop. You can cut them into pieces, and they will still those pieces will remain animate to a certain degree. Which we see next episode. Whereas here, if they are not a skeleton that is CGI, if they're played by an actor, you can kill them seemingly the same way you kill anybody. Because, again, the only people that are using anti-white weapons are Barrack with his flaming sword, which they show as being remarkably ineffective. Yeah, they keep coming. Yeah, they keep coming, even though they're on fire. So, yeah, inconsistent. But Jorah's taken out a lot of them. Jorah's the other Uh, anti-zombie weapons, and they work well. Yeah, good on Jorah. The real MVP of this episode. And then you see John start to give up. He's looking around. He's like, well, this isn't good. And then... Da, 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 da. Oh, Danny is making her way to the ring. Drogon comes in at just the moment that our hero is about yeah. to die. Dragon X Machina. They all, I mean, the, they, there's, and, and shout out to the show. I mean, it looks, it looks brilliant. It's gorgeous. Uh, this, this, is one of the more, this is one of the most beautiful scenes they've filmed. The, these dragons yeah, yep. lancing through the zombies is gorgeous. Yeah, and great score, too. Very I, much so. I like the score. Um, and, I mean, even as much as I dislike the episode... I still gave me chills. Oh, yeah. And it did. The the fire's breathing in, and very quickly, Danny is able to take out an awful lot of the whites. Mm-hmm. Um, and first time I watched this, I remember turning to my wife and saying, man, this shit, like, it's over. Like, Danny can just destroy this army at any point she wants to. I was not prepared for Ice Javelin. I was not prepared for Danny to land. I mean, it's just at this point, just that, okay, just destroy the army now. You. <laughs> They apparently have nothing you can nothing to do to mess with you. Just keep going in circles until they're all dead. But yeah, Ice Javelin came out of friggin' nowhere. Yeah, that and that that is preposterous. Like <laughs> anyway, so Danny lands and she starts to load everybody on the back of Drogon, which is like the Westerosi first class flight. And John, of course, does not get on. Why? Why? Why does he, he, he the only explanation is your suicidal theory. Yep. His yep, bl- or his blood is just up and he's not thinking clearly. But why? Now, th- my suicidal theory is now fact. Okay, yeah. it's fact. It's like gravity. And he takes off and he starts fighting more whites. And we see the Night King get handed what looks like an ice javelin. Yeah. He looks up. He cocks. He aims. And this, I mean, the Night King has got a cannon. Oh I mean, yeah. We're talking. This, Aaron Rodgers squared here. I mean, he has got. This he can really out. throw a football. He can really throw a football over the mountain, Spencer. Yeah, he, and he yeah. yanks that thing. He fires it off, and he hits Viserion. Viserion. This is part I don't understand. Seems to explode, explode? from inside, as if he had some sort of. I don't understand. He, anyway, he hit the fire gland. I get. Yeah, you hit the. Okay, all right. Shout out to you. All right, hit the I, fire I, gland. I'm guessing. Sure, well, that works. Yeah, that, that's good for me. And he explodes, Viserion falls down, and falls into the lake. Here's the thing. I think in this scene that you are supposed to be emotionally impacted by Danny's uh, reaction to that. Mm-mm. 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 Not me. It was when the other dragons screamed. Yeah. And you hear uh, Drogo uh, and um, Rhaegal. Yeah. They both scream out in anguish. I'd also like to point out Rhaegal nopes right out of there. Like, oh, yeah. he is gone. And we don't see him again for the rest of the episode, by the way. We don't see him back in Eastwatch. I theorize that by the time they get back to Eastwatch, uh, <laughs> Rhaegal is back in Dragonstone. Yeah, just like, I'm out. Did not know they had that. Discovered an entirely new thing. Did not buy into this transaction. Thank you. Gone. Yeah, and now I'd like to draw a parallel between what John does here 
And what Jamie Lannister does, I know it's you're not going to like this, but what Jamie know, Lannister does in Spoils of War, where it's a purely emotional reaction, yeah, and it's a suicide mission, mm-hmm. but he is going to go after the Night King. Let's and talk he a- just starts chopping people down, and he gives them this look, and, and credit, all the credit in the world to Kit Harrington because it, he really acted it well. And when I watched it, I thought he was actually going to try to cut through and try to get to him. Mm-hmm. And I think he would have, but there's another ice javelin. And, you know, another 10,000 zombies between him. But, yeah, I yeah, agree yeah, that it was like a purely that. emotional decision. And he snaps out of it the moment he realizes, oh, crap, they've got another one. If I keep doing this, I'm threatening everyone. Which he yeah, should have but... realized that about three minutes ago, but fine, deli- deli- delayed reaction, whatever. Right. So he sees the other ice javelin. He starts screaming, leave, go, now, leave. Danny hesitates a little bit, but a bunch of whites knock John into the lake. And at that point... You know, she, there's nothing for her to do. She leaves. Now, I would like to point out that the ice javelin gets thrown at Drogo, or Drogon, but mm. he rolls, he dodges it. He yeah. So my question is now that the dragons know about the ice javelin, is it as much of a threat, right? Because Drogo no, Drogon knows to look for it. I mean, he clearly was able to barrel roll out of it. Wh- I don't know. I mean, this is clearly meant to draw a comparison mm. between Quibern's scorpion that we saw back in Spoils of War. Of where this is clearly meant to be the anti-dragon weapon, which raises the wonderful question of who is the Night's King's Quibern? Is he the one that carries over the ice javelin that I made this for you? This is our anti-dragon weapon. Have fun. Um, <laughs> Here you grace. Here you go, your grace. Yeah, but the same is with the, the scorpion. That once they know that they exist, they can avoid them. That this weapon only really effectively works as they either don't know you're throwing it or don't know you have it. Exactly. That was my read on it. Is that you get basically Night King? You have a, you have one shot at this. And now the dragons know they're going to be on lookout for it. We know dragons are really smart. We know, to your point, that they're capable of looking for particular weapons and, yeah. and avoiding them. So I, I don't know. I don't think. Why do you pick, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think the Night King's going to be able to do this again. Why do you, under those circumstances, then why did he throw over Danny and Gang? Why didn't he pick Drogon for his initial target? Why did he pick Viserion? Because it was more impressive to pick one out of the air. That might be the dumbest part of this episode, and that is saying a lot. But I yeah. 100% agree. It makes zero sense to go after anybody but Drogo. Yeah. All your heroes, all of them, are right there. One yeah. shot, you've won the war. Yeah. Is he just trying to make it a sporting chance? Yeah, he threw a Hail Mary when really it's Hoss Pass was right there. Yeah. <laughs> Game over, right there, touchdown, done. Anyway, Danny flies off. Uh, Drogon... Uh, doesn't get hit by the second ice javelin. He, he barrel rolls out of it. And we cut back to uh, John. He's uh, getting out of the lake, I guess. Uh, you know, Hypothermia is show, not a thing. Well, yeah. But from the show's perspective, I guess they've, they we're meant to believe that once the whites go in water, they're completely ineffective. So all the whites that dumped in the water with him, they just fell to the bottom and John was able to come up. And because John wasn't out of uh, the water, he was, he was under it, the whites start to move on. And he gets up. Longclaw is surreptitiously right there. I, I, he climbs I, I, up. I love his sword is waiting for him like Indiana Jones's hat. <sighs> I know. It's just anyway, he gets up. And he's he's clearly very, very cold and he's weak. And he, he comes up and he's he's ready for one last showdown. Uh, you can draw you can draw a uh, comparison here to the Battle of the Bastards, right? Yeah. When he just takes his sword up and he's like, All right, there's an army in front of me, but I'm gonna go. He does the same thing here, except is that Uncle Benjamin? Oh, yeah, it's Uncle Benjamin. He comes in with his big chain fire thing, and he's bop, 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 which seems to be a pretty effective 
weapon when you're on horseback. We'll mm-hmm. learn later. Not so much when you're not. Mm-hmm. And he fire whips a bunch of the whites. He picks John up. John is just astonished, as you would yeah. imagine. He has <laughs> no idea Vision's still alive. How? Oh. Yeah, or quasi alive. And yeah. he puts John on the horse. Now, Spencer, did you catch this? That when he puts John on the horse, before John says anything, Benjamin actually says, I can't pass. No, I didn't hear that. He did. He says, I can't pass. And then John goes, come with me. And Benjamin gives him kind of a, like a side look and just goes, there's no time. Okay. I that I actually did not hear that. I'll need to go back and check that. Yeah, peep it. Point for me. Put it on the scoreboard. We, but yeah, and that would that would actually create some consistency, right? Because everybody's like, well, why didn't Benjamin just get on the horse with him? I well, still, let's be, I still hate it. I still hate it so much. I yeah, still, so let's, let's, let's fix the episode. Well, okay. we can't do that, but let's fix this scene. Spencer, isn't the play here for John to fall into the lake, Drogon to take off, and Rhaegal to come down and grab John out of the lake? Yes, yes. That's the play. We, t- we talked about that at the time when we first watched it, that that is how you do this. You, if, you, if you bring Bingen in, you have, bring, you have Bingen reunite with them as they're marching north. There's no reason for him to be coy about this. There's no reason for him to wait to... He's in a situation where we have to just charge through a hundred thousand, a hundred thousand men horde to get to his target. They have such it, an opportunity it, yeah. to connect John with dragons here in the eyes of everyone. I don't know why they didn't go with it. I completely agree. Rhaegal should have grabbed John out of the lake, threw him on his back, and then now you you've already you've gotten to where they're gonna go. We all know where they're gonna go in season yeah. eight. That John is a dragon rider. I don't know why they didn't do it. It's very frustrating. But anyway. John takes off. He looks back, and Benjen is overwhelmed by the whites. Uh, R.I.P. Uncle Benjen. Yeah, and uh, it just feels so token. It just feels like that they someone stepped in, reminded him. Oh, right, isn't Benjen north of the wall? Oh, okay. We'll write him in to die here. Okay, that works. I, I just hate that he went out just in such a token, off-the-cuff little scene to try to explain how to keep John alive in an impossible situation. Yeah, I agree. All right, we cut back to Eastwatch. And uh, they're prepping the uh, ship for them to leave, but Danny is standing guard. Um, Seemingly less choked up about her dragons than she is about losing John. Yeah, it's very weird. I don't understand how she's gotten so close to him this quickly. I also don't understand why she thinks John would be potentially yeah. coming back. Isn't it unrealistic for her to even be hoping that he survived? He is dead. There's no way anyone survives that, given the information that they have. There's no way anyone survives that given the information we have but yeah i don't. but isn't the fact that danny shouldn't even be hoping that john survives like undercut the whole plot because yeah. it just shows how stupid it is that he did survive yeah it shows how very much even the characters are aware of the fact that oh he can't die he's a main character oh it's the worst anyway and then <laughs> jorah's trying to get her to go which is hilarious <laughs> you know <laughs> Your Grace, move on from this John guy. Come on, come with me. He's real dead, Your Grace. I know he was cute. I know he was cute, but come on. He, he was short. We all agreed that he was short. <laughs> and then, whoop, you hear the horn. Yeah. There is a hump, a slunched over uh, John on horseback making his way toward the East Watch Gate. Danny exhales. She's super excited. They get him on Danny's ship. Uh, they start stripping his uh, clothes off, which are basically ice at this point. Danny now sees the heart scare, uh, scar. Yeah. Oh, yes. Spencer, I think this is when it goes down. She says, oh, he's magic like me. 
Yeah, I mean, this is her finally seeing that the, nor the people in the North weren't just simply being metaphorical in terms of him taking, to taking a knife to the heart for his people. And that establishes a connection that she was looking for for a while. Right, and I give the show credit because they built this up. They put it in multiple scenes of dialogue, which we've pointed out on this podcast. And the culmination is here where she actually sees it. And, you know, shout out Amelia Clark. She has an emotional reaction upon seeing those scars. Very much so. Uh, John is still dead seven times before he ever made it to the scene. But yes, it was a quality plot movement that they got to her reaction. A very legitimate and interesting reaction once she finally sees uh, his own magical connection to the world. Yeah. Okay, moving along here. We go to Winterfell. Sansa is searching Arya's room. She finds her book of faces. Uh, only thing I find interested in this entire scene is that it looks like Sansa does pull out Walter Frey's face. Did you catch that? Yeah, it, look, it did look like his, but... Yeah, yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah. And then Arya comes in. Sansa's spooked. Uh, she tries to threaten Arya. She says, I have 100 men here at Winterfell, all loyal to me. Arya says, they're not here now. <laughs> yeah. um, she goes, you know, where did you get this? She goes, in Bravos when I was trained to be a faceless man. And this is hilarious because yet again in this season, Sansa goes, what does that mean? If you'll I remember, love that she's asking. If you remember, she had to ask Bran the same thing about being the three-eyed raven. Yeah. I, I do appreciate that. That someone's finally saying, okay, not on the same page as you, haven't had the same circumstances, go back, explain, please. What does that mean? Anyway, Arya insinuates that Sansa wants to rule over Jon. Arya is very intimidating here. Uh, makes mention uh, that she could potentially take Sansa's face. Uh, walks up to her with the dagger, uh, and that is the dagger. Mm -hmm. And then just flips it over on the pommel and gives it to Sansa and walks out. Spencer, I hated this scene. What did you think? What was the point of any of it? What was the point of any of it? I, I, I don't get it. I, I truly don't understand what they're going for here. I mean... It suggests that when she gives the dagger to her that she's, you know, saying, you know, actually, I trust you. I've got your back to some degree. But why all the frontin'? What are they going for? What is the point of any of this other than to just try to confuse the reader and create drama? Is there any plot point behind any of these scenes between Arya and Sansa? No. Okay, then, then no, we're good. That's Moving I'm, on. I'm willing to just let it lie there. I didn't like it anyway. Yeah. Cut back to uh, Danny's ship, which is now en route, I would think, to Dragonstone, potentially, I don't know, uh, White Harbor, if they're going back to Winterfell. Mm. And John wakes up and Danny is there. And they have a touching moment, but see what it did there? And Danny says it was worth losing one of her dragons to see that the threat is real. The, I, the fuck not, she says that? Yeah, Oof, not so much. Uh, Anyway, she does vow to help John defeat the Night King. Yeah. Because now she knows this is a big deal. And then, oh my God, ladies and gentlemen, our Oscar-worthy moment, John, figuratively, bends the knee. Yeah. In a scene where uh, he calls her Danny, and she says, Danny, she's going to laugh. the last it person off. to call me that? My brother? <laughs> the company you want to keep? Yeah, being a little flirty here. Uh, oh, and he oh. says, potential line of the episode, everybody. All right. How about my queen? Yeah. She tears up. She says, I hope I deserve it. And he said, you do. Spencer, fire away. Uh, yeah, I thought that as much as I've, I thought they've really rushed this to some degree, it is a touching scene. It is a something that they've been building up of the tension between the two of them where she's not willing to commit to any cause but her own. He's not willing to yield the sovereignty of his people for someone who's not willing to fight for them. And they finally have come together in shared pain and trauma from what they've just endured. Uh I found it believable. I found it worked to a certain degree. And I then like that it's awkward that he holds her hand too long because everything about John has to be awkward to some degree. Yeah. I don't think he held her hand too long. I think he held her hand the amount that Danny wanted him to hold it. And I think that's why Danny bails. 
True. Uh, and, true and we'll true. see that later. Anyway, uh, I think we're done with that that scene. I mean, I think the whole point of it was to show that Danny was emotionally um, invested in John's survival. That now she knows the threat is real, and now John has met the knee. Yeah. We go north of the wall. Uh, last scene of the episode. The Whites uh, conveniently have very large chains. So this speaks to the, the theory that you have been uh, referencing throughout this episode. And the Whites pull Viserion out of the ice. And the Night King walks up and he reanimates Viserion. I think the thing to remember here is that Viserion's eyes go blue like a White Walker does. Now, yeah. he, he's not a White. He has been reanimated as a dragon, White Walker, ice dragon type thing. He's not a White. So he's not going to continue to decompose I think. Which, Spencer, anything you want to point out here? I would, I would suggest that's where they're going through, and we've seen that the Night King can create that. But they hurt that theory in this same episode of where they comment that the blue, that the bear has blue eyes. So if that's what they're going for, they undercut it themselves 40 minutes ago. So, yeah, I agree. I agree, but I do think that's what they're going for. I think it's what they're going for, and I also, like you, just looked at the chains and went, sure, yeah, they've got... <laughs> They've got chains that um, Tyrion would have loved to have had at King's Landing for the Battle of Blackwater on the show in terms of the amount of effort that would have had to have gone <laughs> to produce those and carry those to this particular battle. Yeah. So, okay. Into the episode. Uh, I promised everybody that we would talk about, Spencer, a theory that you've been talking about, that basically this entire episode was a trap laid by the Night King. Let's address that after we grade the episode. Spencer, what's your grade? Worst episode of the season, certainly probably one of the bottom three of the entire show okay letter grade letter grade uh, i mean not are we judging the show as compared to itself or compared to other shows because it's never going to be less than a c minus uh, for compared to other shows however you want to however you want to do it man i mean purely the show unto itself i think this episode is if it's not a failure it's close to it it is has some legitimately good dialogue that can is and some legitimately wonderfully shots, wonderful film shots that are just lost in the worst plot directions they've ever come about with this show. It none of the plot directions make any sense. They're clearly just for the purpose of show progression rather than anything that actually fits with the world that they've built and the prior plot lines that have led to this moment. And even watching it for the first time, the only way we found it palpable was to do what we're going to do here in a minute and make theories to justify what the show just showed us rather than theories that actually legitimately arise from the circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I give it a D plus. Okay. Uh, it would be an F, uh, but the production quality was really high. It's really uh, a shame that this was such a, an episode that fell as flat as it did with us. And I think most of the fandom because traditionally the penultimate episode of this uh, show uh, and seasons are the best episode, and we always look forward to it. I remember Spencer. We, uh, for the audience, uh, one of the things that Spencer and I do is, you know, we, you know, we live in different states, but we get together. Usually, I make Spencer come up to North Carolina, and we watch <laughs> at least one of the episodes together. And when we first started doing that, we did it with the penultimate episode. We didn't do it with the finale, because our thought was that's always the best episode of the season. Mm -hmm. And it's a shame because in season seven, man, that really was not the case. No, and I think we even were kind of worried. Uh, I think we'd like watched episode five and went, okay, nothing about episode six is going to make sense. So I think we actually, I think I came up for the, the season finale the last you did because we th assumed that season six was going to suck based on what it was going to be about. Yeah, no, you're right. We did. We, we read the tea leaves and you decided to come. And that was actually a good move because um, as much as we complained uh, in this 
episode. Um, we are not going to complain as much in the next one because no. the the next one's pretty good. Yeah, it's got it's got it's got it's got its problems, but it's got a lot to recommend about it, and it doesn't have the same just pure plot problems this one does. And I think that's why we're hardest on this one is that you and I care a lot about the plot. We care about a lot of the character development, and everything else, and this show, this episode succeeded in so many of the ways that the show uniquely does and then failed in all the ways that it's supposed to be carrying forth the legacy of the mythos of the show. Mythos yeah. of the book. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, but, you know, for those listening, uh, thank you for hanging in there with us until this point. <laughs> Sorry, Sorry for the we were so negative. Hopefully, at least uh, some of it was a little bit entertaining. Spencer, can you do a minute on the Night King plan the whole thing theory? Okay, and I'm again, this theory is so much spitballing that it kind of just is going to evolve as you and I talk about it right now. But the idea behind it is that so much of the decisions, not decisions of our main characters don't make any sense, but fine. But decisions of the Night King also don't make sense, which that doesn't work. The Night King is meant to be one of the big power players of all of this. He's meant to be one of the ones that has an awareness of the whole game. He's meant to be on the level of Bran and having ability to be aware of the playing field where few others are capable of. So for him to just kind of wait idly around the lake doesn't seem to make any sense, particularly when we know that he's got friggin' ice missiles that he can show that explode upon impact. If he wants these heroes dead, he can do it. He also is going to be aware immediately of anyone who's operating around his field division. He's going to know about their little hunting party because he is an all-powerful um, uh, he's an all-powerful seer the same way Bran is, apparently. So, a lot of fans have tried to justify a lot of the very questionable decisions on his part by saying that he needs a way to get through the wall. They've never breached the wall before. They don't have some of the magical devices that the books have set up may exist to possibly help bring down the wall. They don't have ice spiders that can climb the wall, apparently. We've at least never seen them. Um, so they need a means to do so. And he knows they need a means to do so. And if he is indeed aware of the whole playing field, he knows of the existence of dragons and how he can use them. And as we can talk about, ice dragons are apparently maybe a thing. So he maybe even is aware of them from that, process, from that prospect. prospect. So it's possible then under this theory that a lot of his decisions in terms of waiting for them, in terms of letting somebody get away, in terms of luring them into the situation of where he's giving them what they want seemingly easily before then slamming the door on them, just trap them in place and then just leave them trapped in place, is to get Danny there for the sole purpose of using these weapons that he's devised to kill a dragon, to reanimate a dragon, so that he's got a means of taking down the wall. That's basically the hard and fast of the theory. In terms of evidence to support it, it's other. It's there to explain why he doesn't move faster or doesn't do things that he logically should be doing. Yeah, I mean, that theory rings to me like <clears throat> sort of the defense in a murder case. Yeah. When someone really did murder somebody and then you have to try to reconstruct the whole thing and come up with some alternative reality. Yeah. As to like what really happened, because I feel like we're just we're just trying to come up with something to make the show make sense. But as you pointed out and shout out to you, Spencer, good job by you. She he could have just the Night King could have just killed Drogon easily in a heart. That, so that so it all make falls sense. apart. That doesn't make any sense apart. in the theory. Yeah. So I don't buy this theory. I think the show was being sloppy uh, and that's putting it lightly. Uh, but. It's out there. That's a theory. So if you subscribe to it, then uh, and, okay, I disagree with you. All right, Spencer, you want to get in the best line of the episode? But just to give you credit, I like your little mention about a murder trial theory. I, I'd offer that it's basically a murder trial theory of a guy going forward and sitting on the stand and saying, 
Come on. If I'd done this, don't you think I would have done it smarter? That That's what this theory is basically there for, is to, is to, put, is to um, represent that idea. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Okay. Quotes. We quotes. Got, we got some quote, All right. We've got some quote options. Yeah, especially earlier in the episode. So for those who are listening the first time, uh, thank you for listening. You should go back and listen to the previous episodes. But... Uh, I'll explain the segment to you. Basically, we choose the best line of the episode, and I choose that alone. I'm the emperor, but we go back and forth. Uh, so I, I'll put one, I'll put one out there. Spencer put one puts one out there, and then eventually I decide on one. So Spencer, I will start. Please. I can breathe again. Down south, the air smells like pig shit. That's a good line. Again, and I, I'll reference this one from Thormund talking in the exact same thing: that walking's good, fighting's better, fucking's best. There's not a woman within a hundred miles of here. Oh, we have to make do with what we got. Okay. Sir Jorah Mormont. It'll serve you well and your children after you. That's a good one. I like that one a lot. Uh, yeah, good impression by me, too. Oh, very well done. You've, ma- you've mastered Ian Glenn perfectly. <laughs> uh, this, I don't, how, how do we want to divide up everything that uh, Tormund and the Hounds say to each other? I mean, just go. Okay, I'm just going to read the whole thing and we're going to pick little parts of it out. Uh, I have a beauty waiting for me back at Winterfell, if I ever get back there. Yellow hair, blue eyes, the tallest woman you've ever seen, almost as tall as you. Brienne of Tarth? You know her? You're with Brienne of fucking Tarth? Well, not with her, but I see the way she looks at me. How does she look at you? Like she wants to carve you up and eat your liver? Oh, you do know her. We've met. I want to make make babies with her. Think of them, great big monsters. They'd conquer the world. How did a mad fucker like you live this long? I'm good at killing people. It, there's so much in there. There's so many good quotes in there. Whoa, Spencer did his homework for this episode. Good job, Spencer. I wrote it out. I watched it three times so I get it all written down. Credit to you. Good job. Um, I'm going to go to... Hmm. I, I get this, you're not going to like this one, but this is when Sansa and Arya are talking. Mm-hmm. And Arya just goes, and you were stupid enough to believe them. <laughs> I did like her intonation on stupid. I, I, yeah, I will give credit. It's just, it just well acted by Maisie Williams. Look, I will give credit to that. Um, I'm actually going to skip Barrick, uh, the whole life, death, it's the enemy thing. I liked it, but I don't think it really merits the best quote because yeah, it said just agreed. written out. It kind of looks hokey. I'll go with uh, Tyrion. Oh, my mistake. I suppose he stares at you longingly because he's hopeful for a successful military alliance. I'm going to go back to Tormund and the Hound. Please. Dick. Cock. Ah, Dick. I like it. Bet you do. Uh, yeah, it's a good one. Um, another one from me. Uh, I I actually liked this one just because I liked what it said about the two characters that were sharing this moment. Of where Beric looks down at Thoris and says, are you all right? He looks at him just incredulously and says, I just got bit by a dead bear. And Beric just smiles at him and says, aye, you did. And then Thoris kind of smiles back and just says, Funny old life. I like that yeah. moment between two truly old souls. Agreed. That, yeah, good job. Spencer, you're... Damn, I'm losing this episode. Oh, my God. Uh, we go to Winterfell. Um, I just like this line from Sansa. It, it uh, sums up everything we've been saying about the Northern Lords for the better part of the season. Mm-hmm. Bloody wind veins. <laughs> it is a great line. I should have written that down, even at the time I went. That is a really accurate description of something that's pissed me off. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to offer the ending line or just cause that's the next one I got that I love. All right. Not Danny. How about my queen? 
Very good. Got a few more. Go on. I'm actually done, so you can feel free. Yeah. I thought you were the bravest man I ever saw. Hmm. Just the drunkest. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I like I agree with you. That's much more heartfelt than funny. The hound. They say it's one of the better ways to go. Yeah. And and again, not not necessarily the best on paper, but in terms of the moment, in terms of what it says about the character, that's a good line. Tyrion, you can't. The most important person in the world can't fly off to the most dangerous place in the world. Indeed. And it needed to be said. And it's it's interesting that in some ways Danny's decision there is driven by the fact that she's not when he's recommended she not participate before she thinks it's led to failure. But he's definitely and, right here. And the last one I've got is if you die, we're all lost. Everyone. Everything. All right. A lot of good, a lot of good entries in best line of the episode. Spencer, are you ready for me to make judgment? Uh, how are you going to pick just one? I mean, it said that the, the, the actual dialogue was not half bad for much of the episode. We had good options. Ooh, all right. Everybody, ladies and gentlemen, best line of the episode, season seven, episode six. All right. How about my queen? Okay. Good job, yeah. Jon Snow. Yeah, it's it's a powerful line. It's one of the few moments we've seen Danny truly broken up of where she's very, very much touched when he says it, and we are too. Yep. No, I think that's the most powerful line of the uh, inconsequential line of the episode. So it had to be it. And good job for John. I think that's his first entry and best line of the episode. I, I would offer as a runner-up everything that Tormund's everything that Tormund says to the Hound because yes, please. <laughs> I know I had to stop myself. I feel like I pick Tormund every episode, so I'm <laughs> trying to like get off that. This is your this is your affirmative action pick. You're going with John just to have diversity in our in our quote cast. Well, I also I I like to go with like the funniest lines. Actually, it's not the first John line, by the way, uh, because I also picked him to say with your gray uh, with uh, with respect your grace. I do not need your permission. I am a king. True, that was a good line. Uh, so, I remember that one. Yeah, so he's got two, but I, I just felt like. John bending the knee here, that that obviously is one of the most important things that happens. And it happens in, you know, one line of dialogue. So that's the best line of the episode. We now move to a little segment we like to call Big Nerd, uh, Bitch Nerd, uh, <laughs> Big Nerd Bitching. Take it away, Spencer. Okay. We've, as said, we've ranted a lot. So the normal three, I'm actually going to just reduce to you picking two. Does that sound all right to you? It does. Fire away. Okay. Uh, three options. Um, first option Tywin Lannister, the show very much portrays how shows Tywin as if we're always seeing through the eyes of Tyrion. And I feel like that leaves out a more complete view of his character and the fact that he was not just feared by all those around him. There are those who legitimately respected and those who legitimately loved him. And it's worth mentioning. So that's option number one. Option number two, Tormund. Where did he get the name Husband of Bears, Husband to Bears from and how that connects in to possibly other characters that we see on the show? And option number three, ice dragons. They are maybe a thing, though possibly not as confirmed in the world of Westeros itself outside of myth. You, sir. Okay. You've got your three. What's your favorite two? Uh, Let's go with Tywin and ice dragons. You hurt me with not doing torment, but fine. We'll do those two. Uh, We'll do ice dragons first just because it's quicker, but... We have now very much, and we'll see even more over the next episode, heard about ice dragons. Ice dragons we've now just seen depicted as being a reincarnation, resurrected thing of the others. Possibly even a White Walker itself. However, ice dragons have come up before, I think even at the show on occasion. 
of where they're very much part of the mythos of the North, of where dragons, as we primarily seen them, are associated with being a very much foreign thing. They are a magical creature that came from across the sea, from ancient, now-lost Valyria, which no one in Westeros really has much connection to or understanding of. But going back thousands of years, ice dragons have been a thing in the North. They have been a constant part of their description, of their tales, of the stories they pass down to children, of something that is beyond the wall. Up there with snarks and grumpkins, there are consistent stories about ice dragons roaming the shivering waste. Roaming the shivering sea in the white waste. There's so much part of the mythos and so much part of the stories of Westeros that even constellations are named after them. So... And in terms of their descriptions, they're very much put in contrast of the dragons of Valerian. They're described as being far larger. They're described as, rather than being made of living fire, they're made of living ice, with eyes of pale, crystal, of pale blue crystal, which we just saw very much here, and vast translucent rings, translucent wings. And also, very notably, rather than breathing fire, they have breath of ice cold. So much so that when certain characters are walking through particularly frozen or cold moments, they even describe it as if they're walking down the gullet of an ice dragon. So much taken with this concept that the first, one of the first stories that George R. R. Martin wrote, long before he ever wrote, George, uh, wrote Game of Thrones, that could be associated with the world of ice and fire, is a little children's short story entitled The Ice Dragon, which he later readapted to fit more in the times when he re-released it, near, I think, in the 2010s. And it tells the story of a young girl taming and learning to ride an ice dragon. A lot of people assumed for years that this was in some ways a precursor, a hobbit to the Lord of the Rings world in a similar kind of way. Uh, that this was a story set beyond the wall, possibly in such ancient history that the wall itself didn't even exist yet. Because it doesn't fit a lot of the geographic or cultural depictions or descriptions that we have for the world of Westeros. But unfortunately, relatively recently, uh, George R. R. Martin himself put a kibosh on this theory and said that it is an entirely parallel story that is not set in the same world, or at least not in the same way. So ice dragons may indeed be a thing. They're at very least part of the ancient myth of Westeros. But whether they literally exist and whether stories about them literally exist has not clearly been set forth until this moment in the show of where we very much now have an ice dragon but possibly not as its own, but clearly not in this case as its own independent living thing that is natural to the world. Yeah, so agree with you that uh, the introduction of ice dragons in the show, uh, I don't know if that works with the lore, works with the book and the canon. Mm -hmm. I will say that this issue pulls very popularly uh, because people want to know about ice dragons. That's the question that results from this episode, right? You mm -hmm. want to know, like, is there precedent for this? What is this thing that I'm seeing? And therefore, Spencer, the fact that you brought this up in Book Nerd Bitching, I appreciate it. Passes both chambers, goes to the president's desk for signature. Good job by you. I appreciate it. Now, Tywin Lannister, who, as we've often discussed, I am much more interested in than you are. I think it's fair to say that you were never very fond of Tywin in any sense of the word. Uh, that would be uh, correct. Okay. I'd agree that Tywin is very much, at best, a pragmatically evil bastard. He is always willing to kick the dog to the degree it aids the cause that he believes in. He is the one that, in many ways, a lot of people blame uh, Catelyn Stark for starting this story in terms of kidnapping uh, Tyrion. Um, but it was Tywin that then decided to send the mountain to basically burn the Riverlands to the ground in response to it which is continually how he seems to respond to issues, is that if you defy him, if you thwart him, he greets you with fire and sword. And he even says so as much. 
Yeah, Gosh. just ask the Reigns. Yeah, just ask the Reigns and, uh, and uh, Reigns and Castamere's. But it uh, uh, that's with Reigns and Tarpac. I have to look that up. Ooh, I've suddenly forgotten. But should uh, I sing again? No, no, we've had once. That's enough. <laughs> <laughs> but it may not be the most complete picture of the character. The show itself is very much framed in, in, in that light to the point that they cut many scenes from the books of where other characters who offer a different perspective on his character aren't included or even aren't even written in or even dialogue that they have that's quoting the books. They then cut out half of it so as to just focus on Tywin's willingness to kick the dog. However, in the books in particular, we meet several characters that have a profound degree of respect and even outright love for Tywin as a person, which stands in pointed contrast from the views that Tyrion himself, Tyrion himself and Jaime himself later have. Early on, we have Kevin, who we see on the show is Tywin Lannister's younger brother, one of several siblings that Tywin has, at least in the books. When Tyrion is imprisoned, uh, accused of killing Joffrey, Kevin actually goes down to the cells and actually offers a bit of a defense of Tywin as a person. He talks about how that essentially Tywin was the one that was always being called upon to make the hard decisions. He was the one that... When confronted with the difficulties that was his family history, he was the one who had to rise to the occasion and be a hard man where it was necessary. As Kevin's offering is this defense, as he's offering him that Tywin, forever his faults, is a man of justice, he is a just man who will bring peace and, peace and plenty to the realm, Tyrion suddenly incredulously looks at Kevin and says, you love him. And Kevin almost just sheepishly says, he's my brother. But it's one of those things of where, again, all the show is seen through Tyrion's eyes with respect to how we view Tywin. Tyrion isn't used to the idea that people might have a different frame of reference to look at Tywin as a person. He's truly shocked of when Kevin legitimately offers the justification of Tywin as a person and as being an ultimately a good man that is worthy of love. And that's not the only time that we see it. Another sibling of, of uh, Tywin's, his name is Ginna Lannister. Uh, who is uh, famously referenced on the show as the one fat Lannister, who she definitely earns that title. But she runs into uh, Jamie Lannister. Sick burn. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing her for it. She is a somewhat stout woman. Uh, she runs into Jamie Lannister when Jamie is roaming the Riverlands putting down rebellion, which the show kind of reduced to that being an episode and a half. And she is a very forceful, very interesting, very charismatic character who I was disappointed in some ways was cut because she's very interesting to have on it. She also offers a defense of Tywin. She openly admits that she didn't really like the man that he became in later life, but she very clearly represents how much she loved him for not just for being her brother, but the decisions that he made with respect to her. That her father, Titus, was a famously weak man who would do, make a lot of decisions purely for the purpose of making other people like him, of earning their respect, even if they were very much lesser lords. And so she was betrothed to the Frey family, which everyone, everyone Ugh. saw as a massive step down. It's really yeah, an in, good. As an, even an insult to his house that it would even be considered or proposed, much less accepted for his oldest daughter. And when this is proposed at a feast... The other Western lords straight up laugh at him. That they can't believe it. The Tarbecks, who famously launched their later revolt, like the Reigns, uh, straight up laugh in his face in open court. Um, the Reigns leave the hall in disgust. Everybody else just kind of sits there, 
afraid to really speak how much they find this objectionable. Tywin's like eight at this time. Well, sorry, ten. I think he's ten. He actually stands up and before all the lords of the Westerlands, before his father, before the Freys who are up on the stage basking in, the, in their uh, political accomplishment they just accomplished, Tywin speaks against it. He speaks in defense of his sister. He speaks of how she deserves better than that, that she, this is an insult not only to our family, but it's an insult to her. And like 50, 60 years later, Ginna is still wrapped up in the fact that every little girl needs a big brother to protect her, and Tywin was big even when he was little, and how much that meant to her. And she talks about, you know, Tywin's always famously associated with never smiling, never laughing, but she goes through all the times that she personally saw him smile or laugh when he wed his life when he went when he wed his yeah, wife. Pretty short list. She was able to go through it pretty quickly. She does, but she no, notably offers the last one to Jamie that at Jamie's birth she saw him smile with her own eyes. And again, these are family members. Whatever you can say that of course they like him. Of course they're going to love him regardless of circumstances, despite the fact that Tyrion hates his guts. But they aren't the only ones. We see several other people that we have reasons to respect or like in the books, including your beloved favorite Stannis Baratheon offer legitimate compliments of Tywin as a leader, as a person, as an accomplishment. Pycelle, who the show kind of traces as an old buffoon, but the books make very clear that when he's put in the circumstances of having to rule the realm, he rules it and he rules it well, is in straight up tears at Tywin's wedding and he's not, at Tywin's funeral, and he's not faking it. He legitimately is broken up. He legitimately says that Tywin was the leader that Westeros needed. He was the king that always should have been. Uh, he says, I think the quote is here, I served six kings, but here before us lies the greatest man I ever knew. Lord Tywin wore no crown, yet he was all a king should be. When Stannis talks about the first time he ever brought to King's Landing, he talks about how he thought he was being brought in to meet the Mad King, and that he met him, and he saw him upon his throne, and he, he was in awe of him, of his respect, of his command, of the quality of his decisions and accomplishments. And he's led away, and as they're, be as they're sailing back home, his father, Stefan, turns to him and says, you know, that wasn't the Mad King, right? Mad King stabbed himself the night before. That was Tywin upon the Iron Throne. And Stannis, who's never one to compliment someone idly, tells this story about how impressed he was with Tywin, even at a very young age, just even his bearing as a person. And another, another one last example I'll offer right now is just an example of how the show likes to frame this issue in a way that is very much Tywin negative rather than leaving out the positive is we get a scene of when Tywin is talking with Joffrey. And he says to Joffrey that, you know, when your enemies defy you, you, should, you must greet them with fire and sword. But, uh, sorry, I'll quote it correctly. When your enemies defy you, you must serve them steel and fire. And that's all the show says. And then the show immediately jumps to, and any man who must say, I am the king, is no true king at all. What they leave out, and I think it's very important to describing Tywin's method of rule and character, is the next middle line that's right between those two is that the full line from the book is, when your enemies defy you, you must serve them steel and fire. But then he says, but when they go to their knees, however, you must help them back to their feet. Elsewise, no man will ever bend the knee to you. Framing Tywin is purely a person that ruled on fear is an overly limited view of his character. It's important to look at the various Westerlin lords that, unlike any other of the Seven Kingdoms during the course of these series of wars, they're almost universally loyal to them. And the one exception is an interesting exception. They seemingly do so not just purely out of fear, but because they all, pretty universally from what we hear they talk about him, 
respect him. They think he's a good leader. They think he has done well to improve the overall prosperity of the Seven Kingdoms and their own prosperity as well. If he was purely ruling through fear, then the moment that he was moment, moment that he was weakened, the moment that he was outside of their, they were outside of his immediate observation or control, they would defy him. They would work find ways to undermine him, particularly now that he's dead. But they're so loyal to even his legacy that these various Western. <laughs> Wait a second, you say particular now he's dead. Well, here's what I mean: is that <laughs> yeah, I would say. But and he's dead now. His ability to rule by fear is gone. And the Lannister rule and command is very much threaded, but particularly throughout the books, when they're given opportunities to support other causes in other ways, the Lannister army and the Lannister lords remain re- impressively loyal, if not to the new Lannister leaders, then to Tywin's legacy. I think in some ways, Tywin Lannister represents uh, kind of an old Roman philosophy that Septimius Severus was a Roman emperor in around about 200 A.D., and he, on his deathbed, when giving advice to his sons, as recorded by Cassius Dios, tells them that in order to rule successfully, they need to be harmonious, enrich the soldiers, and scorn everybody else. Part of what we condemn Tywin for, and part of what the show in particular seems to not like about Tywin, is that Tywin rules a medieval world. He gives a damn about those who are actually necessary to rule the medieval world, and doesn't really give much of a tosh about anybody else. His loyalty, the nature of his command, the nature of his focus is not to the people, it's to the lords and structures of the realm. And in that regard, he brought about an era of peace and prosperity that the world had not yet, the Westeros had not seen in generations. But most of our characters that we see through the eyes of are not part of that community. And for their own reasons and for that reason of perspective, they consistently paint Tywin in a solely negative light, where there is ultimately a more complete picture to be offered. And I think the show not necessarily inappropriately, but just by selection, pick solely the perspective and viewpoint of those characters that are either opposed to what Tywin stands for or have personal reasons to hate Tywin as a man. Wow. Okay. All right. I just woke back up. All right. So <laughs> here's the thing. Yeah. Your defense of Tywin, I'm going to pull out three things. One is something he did when he was 10. Another is that Pycelle liked him. And another is that he actually smiled when his son was born. Oh, yeah, great guy. Mm-hmm. Great guy you've got here. I would like to point out a couple things. One is you try to disentangle I'm, ruling by respect and ruling by fear. I'm not sure you can do that. Because even though Tywin dies, they're still scared of the Lannister army, especially in the books, because they're rich. And what? they have a huge army. They're the most powerful army in Westeros. But, yeah, of course they're but still you're, scared you're of framing... the Lannister I'm t- Hey, look, I didn't jump in for you. Bye, Settle down. bye, bye. Yeah, sit down. All right? I'm here. <laughs> I'd also like to point out the fact that like when the realm is challenged, when it when it, it has a real threat uh, of the wildling army, uh, Tywin dismisses the threat and says basically, well, let them get through the wall. Maybe they'll take out the Starks. Mm-hmm. That'd be great. Like, yeah, you're you're a great ruler of this of, of Westeros when like a, a invader threat you don't care about, you're willing to let go through just to take out one of your other enemies, which by the way, is ruling under, uh, ruling over people who are of a part of your realm. Not you at can that compare time. This with, you can compare this with Stannis, mm. who says, no, these, the, the, yeah, the North is an open rebellion, but I am the king of these people. I must protect them. And he goes North and he does so. So I think there's a, a great parallel there. I'd also like to point out that in the books, uh, I think Martin tips his hand a little bit because when Tywin dies, he makes a, a point of saying just how foul and wretched he smelled at his own funeral. And I think that that is 
that is Martin telling you in his core, he was a foul and wretched person. Yes. Was he effective sometimes? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Was he at times a good military commander or a good hand or somebody who was able to save the realm money or put them in a good military position? Of course he was. But at his core, he was a bad guy. Okay. Five things in response. Oh, my God. All right. I'm mapping again. Okay. Point number one, and I'm just going to reference them as they come to my head. You referenced the idea of Tywin's smelling corpse. And I think it is indeed meant to be a moment of it's taking away from a man. It's showing a weakness of the man. It's undermining the greatness that is supposedly being represented for the individual. But then for the rest of the book, there's maybe a half dozen scenes of various characters are sitting down saying, man, everything's gone to shit now that Tywin's gone, of where we're left alone in the world now that Tywin's not here to protect us, or that things are rapidly falling apart now that Tywin's gone. I call shenanigans. I never read that. I never read that. That is several scenes. All right, bring it next episode. We've brushed over them to some degree, but pretty much constantly when um, Jamie is touring the Riverlands and he's talking to the other Western lords or talking to other members of his own family. They all keep saying that. It is a recurring thing. They talk about it several times over books four. They're saying things are bad, but they're not drawing the parallel with, oh, well, now, now that Tywin is dead. No, they, There's a lot of other factors going on Very here. specifically, The realm they was are. at war. You, you had five armies competing against each other. Of course the realm is worse off after that. No, they're very specifically saying that now that Tywin is dead, things are worse. They're very specifically saying that. We can talk about scenes where that comes up. Point number two, you're confusing a medieval army for a modern army. The Lannister army is not an independent institution. It is a collection of various soldiers that are brought to combat by lords. It only exists to the degree those lords are loyal to a cause. They are loyal to a Lannister cause because Tywin created a Lannister cause that can endure beyond him. And it was not. It, it, would, it would not maintain that degree of cohesion. Disagree. Co- Okay, you can disagree, but it would I said I disagree. I understand. I'm saying it would not maintain that degree of cohesiveness. It would not maintain that degree of professionalism if the lords themselves weren't continually dedicated to that cause. That, that it's not a modern army. It's not even necessarily a professional army at all times. It is very much a medieval army, and we have to remember it in that light. Point number three. Being paid well. I'm not saying in any way that Tywin is a good person. He isn't. There is so much to condemn and criticize about the man. He's also in no way perfect. His flaws are apparent. His errors in his decision-making are apparent. He's not a perfect, unmitigated, unlimited master of this game. But what I'm pointing out is that the show enjoys eliminating any scene that provides a degree of nuance or another perspective on his character. That every scene in which they offered an opportunity, with the exception of the one they created between Tywin and Arya, but it's a very different scene from what I'm describing, they take the time to cut even the same dialogue to remove a degree of nuance or remove a degree of different perspective about how even a person who is vile as Tywin is necessary. So, actually, I think I was just yeah, three, but I'll I mean, leave it I think us. that we've talked about in this season how many times they've invoked Tywin's memory, and many times it's been positive. Yeah. I mean, you have Cersei saying, the only way we can win this war is if we do it like father. So I dispute the idea that they just completely railroad uh, the fact that Tywin was effective as a military commander, but I will tell you this: and a leader. This segment has gone on way too long. <laughs> I understand. I, Offer your judgment, out. sir. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, you started with something I disagreed with. You made points I didn't agree with, and then you uh, you got really passionate about it. So I'm going to pass this one through the House, fail it in the Senate. Um, sorry about that. No problem. I'll take a one and a half. <laughs> no, man, I'm 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 joking though. Like, good job by you. You pulled up. 
uh, pulled in a lot of interesting, uh, I think, information about Taiwan. And I agree that the casual viewer probably doesn't understand uh, just how effective Taiwan is within the greater mythos of the story. Right. And I think the show kind of leaves out in some ways that a person can be a bastard-coded bastard and be worthy of respect almost because of that. They seem to frame it only as you either have to be Cersei or you have to be Danny, and there's no grounds by which you can be anything other than one of those two. And I, well, no, they give us some characters that do, like the Hound is one, but I agree not, with Not you as a leader. Didn't. Not as a leader, though. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. All right. Well, I think we've we've hit all of the marks this episode. Spencer, anything else you'd like to say? No, as said, this episode, as much fun as I had enjoyed, uh, as much fun as I had talking with you about it right now, it was deflating even at the time we watched it. It, In some yeah. ways, it hurt my future hopes for what the show could accomplish. And that was hard to say. Yeah, I agree. Didn't like it, but I did enjoy this conversation. So thanks for doing this with me, Spencer. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to hit everybody with one more episode of the Got Questions podcast next week, where we tackle season seven, episode seven, The Dragon and the Wolf. In the meantime, you can find us at mangumtalks.com. Please click on the upper right-hand corner, contact us, and let us know what you think of the podcast. Give us any questions. Hit us up at the Mangum Talks Facebook page or at Mangum Talks on Twitter. Thanks, Spencer. Any, Any parting words? Had fun, everybody. See you next week. Yeah, me too. Bye.